our listening audience back to tracking our history. My name is Frank Remkowitz, better known as Tree, to this august group of brothers, and I am the podcast mentor. The United States Marine Corps has a belief that when all else fails, grab a rifle because you are a grunt, a rifleman, first, last, and always. This podcast is a real-life example of just that concept right in the midst of combat. Marine Corps has a belief that when all else fails, grab a rifle because you are a grunt, a rifleman, first, last, and always. This podcast is a real-life example of just that concept right in the midst of combat. Today, we are going to talk with three Marine officers that, for better or worse, had their experience for 90 days prior to entering their chosen MOS, which was 1802 a Marine Corps tank officer. For the record, there were originally four officers who first did a stint in the grunts, which include Bob Skeels, John Heffernan, Hank Fuller, and Pete Rich. Pete Rich, a stalwart director of the Vietnam Tankers Association, who was responsible for years for the videotaping of the historical presence of tanks in Vietnam, passed away a couple of years ago. It is in Pete's honor and legacy that we dedicate this podcast to Pete Rich. With that in mind, let me introduce Bob Skeels, John Heffernan, and Hank Fuller. Guys, please introduce yourself with a brief history of who you were coming into the Marine Corps. Uh, I'm Frank. I started off. I just briefly read your introduction before I pick up the phone, but... um, you know, to begin with, I can say that my, uh, my veteran's history project, Junior Little which was called, it's called the Library of Congress, uh, Veteran's History Project. Yeah. And I did mine in 2012, finally. And it's basically an hour's video, and, uh, it just covers everything from the start of my, uh, main course career to, uh, uh, the end of it. So, uh,
uh, lanes, it's, and particularly the two people that are in this line, John Hefferton, who uh, was a board lieutenant, second lieutenant like myself, but <laughs> ended up a lieutenant colonel, and Hank, and Hank Fuller, who was uh, second lieutenant and went to, uh, I think it was the captain, not sure. But anyways, uh, so I joined up in uh, November 67 and uh, only spent three years. But one of the reasons for my joining up was, uh, well, at the time, uh, patriotism was, was easy. Um, I had World War II parents. All my uncles were, were World War II Marines and Navy. My dad was Navy. So they all stepped up when they got the call to duty. So it was easy for me to do it. Uh, at the same time, when I went to uh, college at Agri University, I, um, my classmates, we had an ROTC program. I only spent the first two years, the uh, mandatory two years. I didn't go on and continue the, uh, the um, optional last two years. So uh, all the guys, when we graduated in June of 66, all those guys, there was 27 of them, ROTC, they got their bars and they headed to Vietnam. So five of us stayed back and went to graduate school, got our master's in education. And at that time, uh, <coughs> at that time, uh, these guys were pestering us about um, being back at school, chasing their girlfriends or their wives <laughs> instead of joining them in the in the war effort. So that was another reason that I signed up. And also. One of the main reasons was the treaty we had with CETO, uh, Southeast Asia Treaty Organization. So like NATO, uh, once you sign those treaties, it's my feeling that you got to honor them. So yeah. and that was an easy, uh, an easy thought. So, uh, so the only reason that I joined up, joined the Marines, just uh, pressure from my classmates in college, who were all second lieutenants in the Army, were in various parts of uh, different corps, or one, one corps, or two corps, three corps, four corps area, Southern Republic of uh, South Vietnam. And um, so after that, um, I um, flew over there, and in late September of 68, 1968, it was kind of a, a slow period after that. And um, got the surprise. There's four of those guys that showed up, and you just mentioned the four, Pete Rich, myself, John Hefferton, and uh, Hank Fuller. It was a surprise of our life, kind of a curveball situation, but the lieutenant colonel at, uh, I think it was my battalion commander, um, geez, his name escapes me right now, but uh, our regimental commander was Sexton. Um, but I remember by the end of this, uh, and then, uh, but he told us that uh, due to 1968 being the most devastating, de devastating year for Marines, Marine lieutenants, um, I guess there was, uh, uh, there was actually there was 15,000 KIAs and 5,000 wounded, so it was the worst year. But for lieutenants, it was like an 80% chance of being killed in 1968 yeah. if you were a Marine lieutenant up there in that uh, DMZ jungle war, or in the Danang area. The Danang area was the uh, 1st Marine Division, 
up in the jungle area was a third main division. Mm-hmm. But anyways, we all, uh, his guys uh, swallow hard, and we all uh, said, yes, sir. And he said, welcome to the infantry. He said, you're all going temporary active duty, 90 days. Oh, yeah. So I remember that day all my life. But uh, so we all, you know, semi-shocked. But because we wanted protection of a big, uh, a big tank, and we just finished training, so we were kind of gung ho, Marine Corps tankers, and to get the surprise of going into infantry. But we were all trained to be riflemen, uh, and um, so I headed up to I uh, was uh, assigned to Second Battalion, Fourth Marines, um, Echo Company, uh, First, uh, Third Platoon. Third Marine Division. Okay. So I had to go 90 days. So I flew up to uh, it's called Firebase. It was a outpost up in the, the jungle area north of the rock pile called Vandergrift, Camp Vandergrift. Right. For one night, and <clears throat> got some friendly, got some uh, friendly uh, fire incoming. Oh. Turned out to be 105 millimeter house or just a mistake, but you didn't learn that until a few months later. And then I, uh, next day I was flown out by chopper to, uh, Hill 881 in Cape Town. But it was just a very peaceful valley at that time. In fact, uh, uh, I was doing 10 objectives a day. Um, and in that, that, uh, north, in that jungle area, well, from Cape Town north to, and then, well, Route 9, actually. Right now, Route 9, from Camlow right to uh, Laos, and right. then uh, set to the south of Route 9 and to the north of Route 9. That was Quezon, over near Laos, maybe four miles Laos. But all, we were trying to deny, our objective was to deny Glenny Offensive and deny um, the NBA, all that uh, real estate up there in that jungle area. Okay. So uh, we actually, uh, the whole... Uh, um, you know, puzzle was, or the whole challenge was to get up really fast and learn on the learning curve, the experience curve towards uh, being an officer in Marines, a Grand Marine lieutenant in the um, in the jungle um, in the jungle war. Because okay. in training, we learned mostly conventional conventional tactics, uh, squad, fire team. Between company size, battalion size, company tactics. So it's conventional war, but general war, you know, it was just, to me, it was just common sense and getting up on that learning curve real quick. Yeah. Hey, oh, okay. Bob, hang on a second. I want to get, I want to get John and for their beginnings as well. So. John, you're next up. Yes. So, uh, again, same question is, uh, you know, what were you doing before and how did you get in and, and where did you end up? Well, uh, I was pretty much my entire life a spectacularly unsuccessful student. 
I got bounced out of a number of uh, learning institutions, the last one being Marquette University. And when the uh, good fathers told my parents, don't ever send him back. Uh, I, uh, I was working for a Chevy dealer. Uh, and one of the things that people don't think about now, but we thought about then, because I got a letter in about 12 days after I went to work with the Chevy dealer, um, saying that I was drafted. Uh, and I had a report date like two weeks in advance. And I told my dad, you know, I don't want to be like cannon fodder in the army. Uh, he was, my dad was an army guy in world war two. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's, I said, so I'm going to go talk to his recruits. My mom, who uh, was much more sage than I realized at the time said, you go right down there and talk to those blue guys that in the air force, you they have good places to live and, and you'll learn a trade. And I said, okay, mom, and my dad, who's much smarter than he gets let on at the time says, and whatever you do, don't go near the Marine recruiters. <laughs> because they're, they're recognized both like, and they will just laugh at you and, and hurt your feelings and send you away. And I, sure as shit, the first place that I went was the Marine recruiter. <laughs> and uh, signed up, got on the 90-day delay program. So I went into the Marine Corps on the 17th of January in 1967 and went to Paris Island, went through Paris Island, went to ITR, went through ITR, and then got tested along the way and ended up, I was the kind of people they wanted to send to OCS. So they sent me to OCS. I went to OCS um, and actually did that twice. Um, I won't go into why that happened, but it was another one of those adventures that I got myself into from time to time. Okay. And I graduated from OCS and uh, and went to TBS and caught up with the rest of these guys. Ah. Um, I had two disappointments on the way to get to be uh, an infantry officer. Was The first one was when we had um, MOS night. Uh, which is where you pick out your, your military specialty at the basic school, I, I wanted to be a pilot. Yeah. And that week that we had that, there were 48 seats to go to Pensacola. And the next week they had Ted. So when it got time to assign where you're really going to go, there mm-hmm. were two seats to go to Pensacola. I didn't get either one of them. And I said, well, maybe I should be a tanker. Uh, you know, they'll have about all that homogeneous steel around me and mm-hmm. you know like a good way to, to go plus you don't have to walk yeah. um, and and I went to went to tank school and one of the, one of the things that happened after I went to tank school on the way to Vietnam Pete Rich and I rode sit next to each other on the plane to Vietnam oh. and on the way back from Vietnam we both were sitting next to each other we Managed to survive reasonably unscathed, wow. and we got we got to uh, uh, the division, and they they told us, "No, no, you're going to go to um, 
to Grumps for 90 days. What they didn't tell us was, if they liked you, they would keep you. Oh. <laughs> and if they didn't like you, you would get some job in the rear count jackstraps until the end of the war. Oh. Uh, and I was assigned to uh, Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines. Um, and I reported there and tried, like Bob says, I tried to tried to learn to keep up with what was going on. Um, I learned a lot of, a lot of good things there. One was that almost anybody that will take the time to talk to a lieutenant has a better idea than he does. And you should, you should listen to them. Uh, the short story on that was we were going to cross a large open area one day. And so I was forming the platoon up like they got us in Quantico into fire team rushes across the, uh, across the large open area. And this guy in my platoon who'd been there a lot longer than me said, you know, LT, you want to listen to a good idea? And I said, sure. I need all the help I can get. And he said, we don't do it like that. What we do is we make a big D. We make one squad, the front half of the D, the second squad, the second, or the other side of the, of the D, and the third squad is the back bar of the D, and they all face backwards. Everybody faces outboard. Yeah. And we go across that way, and we've never been fired on going across an open area since I've been here. I said, well, he says, we'll probably get shot at when we get to the other side in the, into cover, but at least we'll, you know, have an idea where they are. Yeah. I tried it, and it worked. And I never forgot that somebody always has a better idea than you do. Yeah. Um, and it was, to me, it was just my good fortune to come across that gentleman we were going to do that. Yeah. And I asked him why he did that, why he came up with that idea. And he said, well, you know, I'm from Detroit. And I said, yeah. And he says, there's not a lot you can do outdoors in Detroit. Um, it's either too cold or the ground fire is too intense. And I said, okay. And he said, so I watched a lot of TV. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, and my favorite show was 12 o'clock high. And I figured if they could run all those B-17s around the air with all the firepower pointing out to the outboard sides, it'd be good. That might work on the ground. So we just tried it and it did. And that's how I got to start surviving in the, in the grunts by just listening to anybody that uh, wanted to tell me a, a good way or what they thought was a good way and, huh. and just assessing it. And I was actually one of the people that found out what happened if they like you. Because when I was supposed to go back to tanks, um, they kept me. Oh. Uh, so I was I was with the grunts for almost six months until I got medevaced. And uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, but when I came back from the hospital, General Davis had gone home, rules had changed, and I had to go back and pretend like I remembered almost anything from tax school uh, <laughs> when I checked in with Alpha Company, uh, their tanks. Okay. Okay. Hey, you're up.
I was a fifth-generation farmer's son in, in the Connecticut River Valley. Um, I had two brothers and a sister. Um, all the, when I was a, my parents had gone through, you know, the Depression and World War II and stuff, and we were taught very much to uh, do a good job of work, that my mother used to say. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we, were, we learned how to do that kind of thing, and you learned how to, do what you were told, and there was not a lot of questioning authority when I grew up, as I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And I had always wanted to be, I wasn't much of a student either. I won't go into the problems I had that, <laughs> that uh, with the police and other things nope. um, in schools and stuff like uh, half. Um, but I had always wanted to be a professional baseball player, or I wanted to go in the Marines. And I'm not sure why I wanted to go in the Marines. I just thought that they, I liked the uniforms. I loved the Marine Corps hymn. Um, I thought that if I was going to go into a branch of the service, I was going to go into that branch that was allegedly would give me the best training. Um, I, didn't, I got a chance to sign a baseball contract eventually when I graduated from college, but unfortunately they waited a little, they waited a little too long, and um, I had joined the Marines. Um, I had gone down to the, um, I, at the time, I wasn't uh, particularly enamored of the war. Um, I didn't have any real interest in going there, but if I, I had always figured that it was my responsibility as a male born post-World War II um, that I should go in the service. And I just thought it was more duty than whether uh, the duty to the country and, and um, society and my family and, and and I just felt that that's what I should do, and if it meant I had to fight in a war, then so be it. Um, so that's what I did. I can well remember, my mother thought when I went down to join the Marines, uh, and I, I didn't go to OCS right away, I just went down to join the Marines, and the, the major who was in there said, you graduated from college? I said, yep. He tore up the thing and says, you want to go to OCS? I didn't know what OCS was. I don't know the difference between a general or a private. <laughs> And I said, okay, and so that's how I ended up going to OCS and eventually getting commissioned. Um, when I, I got into country, then I went through the, all the same schooling that, uh, that Heff and Skilsey went through, um, same, all the same classes and all that kind of thing. And I uh, rode over at the same time to, uh, to Okinawa, and I got stuck there for about a week or ten days, um, being the officer in charge, very green second lieutenant, uh, the officer in charge of the uh, flights of uh, very salty Marines who were going home. Um, and then I came, in, I came into country and found out, uh, to my surprise, that I was going to go to an infantry unit. Um, and that was a little bit later. It was probably October 9th or 10th. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was sent to, uh, 
uh, Lima Company, 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines. Um, I, about, I, for my three months, I spent about two months of it as a rifle platoon commander. Mm-hmm. And I spent one month um, as weapons platoon. And the reason for that was that I filled in when I got there for a guy named Tom Doan, who was another classmate of ours who had uh, he got malaria and was gone for the better part of two months. Hmm. And I took over his platoon. Um, and then when he came back, of course, he, he got his platoon back. And uh, I, they stuck me in with weapons, which was, which was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he got in, in, he got in, uh, in a situation where he lost his vision. And I, got, I went back and took his platoon over again until I was um, uh, switched to the, the tank unit in, uh, I don't know, the... 10th or 12th of January, I think, that year, of 69. Okay. Um, I uh, had a... My first love as a, as a, a Marine officer was a, that platoon, that, that uh, first platoon, Lima Company, 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines. And I applied to stay with them. I, w- I didn't want to... I didn't want to... Um, I didn't want to go to tanks. I liked what I... I liked what I'd seen in the infantry at that point. And I wanted to stay with it, and they kept me for, I don't know, I sat in the rear for about a week, I think, while they were deciding whether to, to, uh, whether to honor my request or not. Uh-huh. And they ultimately didn't. And the first sergeant who was following us along from our company said that it, everything got through battalion, but when it got to regiment, nobody decided, they decided, no, nah, we got to... We, we need uh, tank lieutenants and sent me off. Yeah. Um, it, was, um, it was fine. I, I can remember Tree, who was in my platoon, um, and Sergeant Travail and a couple other guys, they had, they had to kind of snap me out of my, my infantry way of life. <laughs> I had to become a tanker. And once I became that, um, I, I liked it a lot more. And I, the, the tanks were like cavalry to me. It was, it was, there was something almost romantic about it. Um, so that's how I started out as a kid. Um, sports were the most important thing to me growing up. Um, hard work. Um, and joined the Marines, and the rest, as they say, is history. Who, who'd you sign with? The contract. Oh, uh, it would have been the Cardinals. Ah. And they came, they, they came and offered me a... I was a third baseman. I was all New England third baseman in college. I played down in the Cape Cod League. I don't know if anybody, if you guys know of the Cape Cod League. But oh, yes. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a real, real good league. And I was an all-star there one year, and then I went back. I uh, Anyway, they said to, not to go anywhere when I graduated from college. Well, I didn't, but they weren't beating the door down, and the real draft was beating the door down. <laughs> so I went home and joined the Marines, much to my parents' chagrin. <laughs> About a week after that happened, I was uh, at a wedding. At, uh, I went to Tufts University outside of Boston. And um, I was at a wedding there for one of the guys that played on the baseball team, the pitcher. And uh, the coach was there, and he says, Hank, where you been? We've been trying to get a hold of you. Jeff Jones, who was the head scout for the Cardinals in New England in those days, wants to sign you and send you down to the rookie league in North Carolina, which was probably what would have been an old class D league. Mm-hmm. I think maybe Class C. I don't know if they have those anymore. But no, I said I'm 
I have um, I've made my choice. I played I played ball until well into my thirties for semi pro teams, but it wasn't it wasn't the same thing as yeah. if I'd had a. I I I, I think that I. In some ways, I feel bad that I didn't get the experience. On the other hand, the Marine Corps experience was the highlight of my life. Yeah. At my marriage to my wife. Yeah. Frankly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I never would have had the experiences or got to know the guys that I got to know had I not been in the Marine Corps. Yeah. Yeah. So I can't really limit it. Rosa. Yep. Okay. So I was going to ask you about the General Davis's program, but I think uh, Bob pretty much covered that. So, how first question is, were you all on Mudder's Ridge simultaneously or at different times? Yes. Well, I know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I know, you know, it was a multi-battalion assault and uh, on December 7th, we all flew into various uh, LZs, mm-hmm. and I, heard, I had heard that some were hot, and, you know, just small action, but um, I, th- I think I went into LZ Maryland, and then I was, uh, I had the unlucky uh, part being uh, my platoon was the point and that whole assault, um, mm. so, uh, but I think those, I think uh, both Hank and uh, uh, and um, John were there on the same day, but flew into different um, LZs. And we had a lot of the battalions that were on um, Bucking Force on all sides. And we had an Arvin battalion just ahead of me up somewhere. I didn't know their exact location, but they were on Bucking Force too. So there was a lot of battalions involved in that assault. But every year they did the same assault. Butters Ridge trying to clear that area out mm-hmm. right. because it was a haven. For the Gooks, they always had an escape route to the backside of that objective, the the big mountain there on the DMZ. So they, they they always made sure they had a escape route. If they were hit too hard, they just lop off the backside. And like those other sanctuaries in Vietnam, uh, Cambodia, and Laos, mm-hmm. they could slip into the DMZ. And we couldn't touch them. Right. But I'll let Hank and John talk about uh, if they flew into one of those LZs. Okay. We uh, this is Hank. Um, we landed on the 22nd of November on Hill 484, which at that time was called Firebase Mac. It had a couple of, uh, it had a couple of 05s there. And it was right at the southern, my recollection of Mudders Ridge was that it went north and south. And as it got to, to the DMZ, it went east and west. It curled. Right. Um, and we were way down at the southern end of that, nearer to Dong Ha Mountain. And we landed there and there was a CH-50, uh, CH thirty four chopper that had been shot down there, and I was just sitting there, rusting away. And the uh, we relieved Alpha Company one three, and Rich Harrington. Did you work? Were you with him, Hef? I, I I knew where he was. He was in Alpha, and I was in Charlie. Right. He. I can remember when we relieved uh, Alpha one three there. Rich Harrington, his face was long, and. I think part of the reason was just uh, there was a hill over where our, th- our third platoon eventually took this, took, um, this hill over. They'd had seven killed and 23 wounded at some point uh, just before that. It must have been just before that because they were getting pulled out. 
And he was a quiet, very nice, quiet guy, as I recall. He just looked drained. Yeah, they got overrun there. Oh, they did. Okay. Yeah. Well, he he looked he looked drained, and we we spoke for a little bit. And he didn't say too much, and I remember that 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 uh, Firebase Mac. Um, it was it must have been there a while um, because there was all kinds of wooden um, walkways that had been built out of uh, the. Uh, Wood that uh, you know they they put the uh, artillery rounds in, and you could walk on those things. And then you weren't in the mud. Unfortunately, you walked with legions of rats. They were all over the place there, and you'd walk up and they'd be running up the the thing there. But that's that's my initial that's my initial remembrance. And I had to go into a I kept a journal over there. I had to go into the journal and kind of look that up so I got the the, the days correct. But that was November twenty second. We first got there, and, mm-hmm. and Lima Company was there until oh, about Thanksgiving, maybe a little bit after that. Um, and then we were we were ferried off and went down, stood uh, bridge security down for the Kegia Bridge down near um, the rock pile. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Okay, John, you're up. When uh, when I went to uh, to one three. Um, I was at Vandergriff for about a week till I could get out to where they were, and they were up on the Ben High River. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, in fact, we all um, ceremoniously went up and urinated in the Ben High, but uh, we marched back from there to the to the top end of Motors Ridge, and then worked okay. our way down the ridge. And sometimes we'd get moved by helicopters and sometimes we would walk, um, which was one of the things that I found out uh, about the infantry right away was the uh, instructions are very simple. Um, it's essentially one foot in front of the other and repeat. Yeah. Uh, so we we worked on different fire bases um, up and down uh, the ridge. And basically what we would do is you go in, capture a fire base, take it back from whoever was holding on to it, and then patrol off that base for, you know, however they want to, hour long they want to leave us there, and then move on to move on to another base. Right. Um, and we were a blocking force. To, I think we were one of the northernmost blocking forces on that, uh, just, you know, that big operation so uh, right after right after that um one three got pulled out and went down to uh south of Danang to uh be in an operation called taylor common um, and we were down there for about a month and a half and then back up to motors that was a big one taylor common yeah yeah you know, we did, we did essentially what you uh, described. Only we went north up the ridge line. I think there were other units doing the same thing because there were people in front of us, people behind us. Oh yeah, and you just kind of kept moving. And we there were we made contact. I'm going to say every third day. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it didn't mean we uh, took casualties necessarily, but the NVA was all over the place there. They yeah. had everything zeroed in and. I remember the first time that it, that uh, <laughs> that I'd had a pretty easy up to that point, 
I remember the first time that we took any substantial uh, 82 uh, mortar incoming. We were going, we were uh, proceeding up this trail, and all of a sudden this stuff's dropping all around me. Everybody's running to, you know, to get up, uh, get cover, and there was a, it was a big log over to my right, and I went running over there, but not fast enough. There were three guys under that log before I got there. <laughs> <laughs> That's what a green second lieutenant, you know. <laughs> That's how he's treated. <laughs> there was no room for me. Yeah. They they were just quicker and they were more, you know, they were just more ready. I get and I I got it. I got to agree with you on one thing, Hef. I think the thing that if you didn't ask uh, your squad leaders and your platoon sergeant whether you were in tanks or you were in the infantry, if you didn't ask them what was going on and try to find out what they knew, then you weren't going to make it as an officer. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I got dropped in an LZ um, a little before this big app, and the 46 put us in the wrong LZ. And when we got there, we immediately started to get mortared. So we started running across the LZ away from the mortars, and uh, one of them went off close enough to me that it knocked me down. I didn't take any shrapnel or anything like that, but it knocked me into this shell hole. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm laying in this shell hole. I, I'm listening to what's going on, and I hear this voice go, "The lieutenant's down." Lieutenant's <laughs> down. And then I hear another voice go, the "Lieutenant's hit." Lieutenant's hit. And I, I'm thinking maybe I should take over right right there. And I heard the fourth voice going, or third voice going, "The lieutenant's dead." So I go, "No, I'm not." <laughs> and from the other side of the LZ, and I didn't recognize the name, and I still don't recognize who it was, I hear this voice go, shit. <laughs> so I thought I had to, about then I had to maybe do a little, you know, work on my, you know, get, people to get used to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you each had one or two or three or whatever, uh, Old salts, so we say, or people, you know, grunts that have been there for a while that that could provide some counsel when you were at least initially yeah, getting up was, to speed. That was key, Trey. You know, when I met my uh, platoon on Quezon, mm-hmm. Hill um, 881, mm-hmm. that was a big, uh, during the siege of Quezon, that was a big, uh, that, was, that was a three-month siege there, and uh, when I was there, I didn't have contact for two months, but when I when I arrived, um, they told me I dropped out of a chopper, and uh, they, they said your platoon is over on the um, east side of the mountain, and they're waiting for you, Lieutenant. So I went over there, and the, the first thing we put some poncho together because it was raining, mm-hmm. and uh, we st- we had a meeting. And I had my platoon sergeant, platoon guide, corpsman, and uh, all these squad leaders. Corporals, Lance Corporal. And the first thing they asked me, the guy was on a second tour, he said, Lieutenant, before you even start the meeting, can I ask you a question? I said, Sure, go ahead. He said, How did we grunts deserve a green second lieutenant uh, t- tank tank commander as a <laughs> grunt commander? You know, and I said, Jesus, give me a trick. I remember saying that and saying, uh, God, you guys kind of give me a break at first. I said, you, because I had a tough night the day before when we got, our tent was torn apart by friendly fire. But um, 
the guy said, okay, go ahead. And I said, you know, I noticed that most, some of you guys have new utilities on Utah. And I said, you know, so I'm not the only one with fresh utilities. You, some of you guys are new to the country too. But I said, are there, is there anyone that's on a second or third tour? And a couple guys said, yes, there is in our platoon. And I said, well, lucky. I'm lucky then because uh, I'm going to learn from you guys and I'm going to try to come up to speed real fast. I told them, I said, what I can do is, um, you know, I was, pretty, I was really good at uh, calling in artillery and training. I was, and I was fairly, fairly good at map readings. So I'm not going to get you lost, but I said, I'll come up to, I promise you I'll come up to speed fast. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to work as a team. Yeah. And uh, decisions to be made. There's be no frontal, frontal charge or front line. You know, they call it the frontal charge. Or, mm -hmm. So, you know, as they did in the old days, they lined them up and just charge. Lieutenant, they charge. None of that. They said, none of that nonsense. And I said, no, I, I know all about that. I heard lieutenants over there that uh, did some of that stuff uh, didn't live too long. But uh, that, that was really key, is to uh, get the experience at tanks, too. Uh, it took me a, a month or so. I told my uh, platoon sergeant I lucked out, Sergeant Al Soto. Mm -hmm. he, uh, he was the reason I think I made it through Vietnam. Is, you know, guys like that, there was one or two guys that saved your life along the way. But mm -hmm. he told me uh, that I was getting too friendly with the... Um, with the Vietnamese people, the Republic of South Vietnam, uh, the indigenous people, they had it, they had it, uh, they got the invasion from the north going on, and they had the Viet Cong that lived amongst them, and the Viet Cong watched them very carefully, and that was the site of many, uh, and they were told not to fraternize with the Americans, but mm -hmm. I didn't know that, well, I learned, you know, guys doing our haircuts, garden bridges and stuff, and, mm -hmm. and, and night duty, uh, different Forward bases, Kong Tien, Jiu Lin, Ocean View. Those are forward bases up on the DMZ. Mm -hmm. You get guys cutting your hair during the daytime and stuff. And they're all friendly. Uh, we love the South Vietnamese people. I worked with the Arvins a lot in tanks, but I got too friendly once. And uh, on the way to Vandergriff, uh, it's getting dark. So I, after a mile, I came back and... Uh, there was a track there was there was a tractor a guy's farming tractor there was a kilter out of kilter so I, I sent Sergeant Sober over there to straighten it out he came back and uh, said the guy was about 90 years old but he wanted us to stay for the night with him instead of proceeding back to uh, Vandergriff proceeding to Vandergriff or to going back to uh, Geo Lin or Conkian so I stayed the night with him I ringed his house with five tanks and um, his son, who was an Arvin lieutenant, came home. They called him Tiwis. Mm -hmm. Came home, and they gave me a brand-new M2 carbine as oh. a gift for helping his, wow. his grandfather out. And there was, like, three girls there, and there was the wife and stuff. And yeah. So I spent the night there, one eye open all night, and five yeah. tanks around his house. Probably one of the most peaceful nights they've had in a long time. But anyway, two weeks later, I was on the same duty. I was called out to... To Vandergriff again for night duty, five tanks because they had intelligence that they were going to get hit. Mm -hmm. They wanted tanks on the lines at night, so I left Kunk Dien and all the way, you know, it was like Kim Lona, Vandergriff, buddy, miles. It's Kunk. 
I think it was near the rock pile. I think it was just north of the rock pile. Yeah. <clears throat> but um, I went in the house with bulldozed, and then at that time, there's a lot of atrocities. The family, there was fence all along those villages, Kimlo, Mylock, uh, mm-hmm. I forget the name of the other town. Uh, um, but uh, there was fence posts and you know, fences and fence posts, mm-hmm. but there was always heads on those uh, fence posts. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure I saw the, the, uh, the house was bulldozed, their house, and uh, Sergeant Soto said, he's in my lead tank, he said, Skills, don't look to your left on the fence post at this time, and I, because there was some fresh heads, and uh, I looked, but I think it was, you know, I can talk about it today, and yeah. wasn't able to ever talk about it before, but there was that family, so it shows you, you got to get up to experience in, in a war, you know, you, a lieutenant and officers, you got to know common sense. You yeah. got to learn from those guys that been there, give you a tour, been there a while, and uh, you can't uh, be endangering other people's lives because you're an inexperienced lieutenant. So, mm-hmm. so I learned pretty quickly and effectively all my life. You know, yeah. that family t- taken out just because I was fraternizing with uh, a little bit too much with the uh, indigenous Vietnamese people. Wow! Well, well. So, I just wanted to tell that story. <laughs> I think, I think, uh, Tree, you'd agree with me. Tree and I were in the same platoon. Yes. Um, and we had a, a platoon sergeant. He was Canadian. And he yep. probably was, present company accepted, the finest Marine I ever served with. Um, and he was my platoon sergeant. And our platoon was always, in Alpha Company, my platoon, our, Tree's my platoon, we were always alone. You know, we were never worked with another platoon. We were at the yeah. washout. We weren't at Charlie Two. We weren't at Contian. We weren't with headquarters. We, and when we went on sweeps and stuff, we went alone. And I think it's because the, the training that I had as an infantry officer, I could read a map and I had some idea what was going on and mm-hmm. I wasn't green. That coupled so that I was trusted by the company commander, that coupled with having the best, um, a platoon sergeant in the world yeah. um, along allowed us to be a uh, pretty high-functioning platoon, I would say. Yeah. Um, and we were independent and went on about our business, but we learned, you know, we were... I, that's basically what I got to say about that. Yeah, yeah. John? Well, you know, it, uh, it all depends on how you... Uh, how you do it? Um, fire truck outside my house. Um, <laughs> when, uh, fire trucks. Yeah. When uh, when I was in Charlie Company One Three, the uh, company commander was a guy named uh, George Kiesel, and he needed somebody that could go out and do things at night. So, uh, he just selected me. So I would take my my platoon, and we would go out just as it was getting dark, and we would stay all night and you know run around and ambush people and that kind of stuff. And, and I had learned some stuff, believe it or not, um, in my high school Latin course. Um, my Latin teacher was a 
big deal about the history of the Roman legions, and he used to talk about them all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things he was really proud of was that the Tenth Legion could like run fifty miles and go to battle. But one of the things that the Tenth Legion always did is, no matter wherever they stopped for however long it was, they always dug in. If it was only fifteen minutes, they dug in. And I carried that with me, and he had another piece that when they dug in at night, they made a big deal of digging in. Um, And they did it, you know, before it got dark so they could see what they were doing. And then as soon as it got dark, they moved. And so I used to do that, too, because I thought it was a pretty good idea. And we used to get people that would come to, to try to ambush us, and they would ambush the place where we, where we were, not... Not, or where we used to be, not the place where we were. Oh, yeah. And so we were pretty successful at uh, at night, so we never really got off that. We did that for months at a time. Yeah. In fact, uh, Captain Kiesel was from Long Island, and so he named me the, um, what normal people would call the Panther. Um, but what came out from him was the Panther. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, P A N T H A, and uh, I I just did that for a long, long time. And uh, and the the other thing was when I got the tanks after I'd been in in the grunts for six months, I was not really tanker material yet. And my company commander was uh, Captain Wunsch, right. uh, Mike Wunsch. Right. And he came up to see me after I'd been there about a week, and he says, you know, you look like a Mexican bandit. I guess we can say that. But he said, and now the rest of your troops are starting to look like that. He says, but I'm supremely confident that you can turn that around. <laughs> <laughs> which was which was one of the gentlest ass tunes I ever got. Right. Yeah. And so the next time he came back, we had turned it around, and... and I got to where I was in a really good uh, relationship with with Captain Wunsch. Um, And he actually convinced me, after a while, he said, what are you going to do when all this is over? And I said, I don't know, I'm just probably going to get out and do something I haven't thought much about it. And he says, why don't you do this? You seem to be pretty good at it. And uh, so he helped me get a regular commission. And um, that that made a couple of things happen that, that uh, really made my life uh, change a lot. Um, since I got a regular commission, when I went home from Vietnam, I had a 0302 and an 1802 MOS. Wow. I went to I went to Second Division, and they had an Antos company or Antos Battalion actually. Mm-hmm. And Antos is uh, those little jack vehicles with the six recoilless rifles on them. Mm-hmm. And their TO called for half infantry officers and half tank officers. And since I checked both blocks, I ended up going there. And make a long story short, in about eight months, they got decommissioned. Oh. And our, our CO um, called us in and said, if you want to go anywhere in the Marine Corps, today is the day. And uh, well, the all regular officers did that. And I said, you know, sir, I've been trying to get to flight school since basic school. 
And he said, okay, he wrote it down. I went back to, to the Bentos Park. I get a call about a half hour later, and he says, do you care whether you go to Pensacola or an Army flight school? And I said, I just want to fly. And he said, right answer. And I was out of the battalion in two days on my way to Fort Rucker, and that's how I started to be a helicopter pilot. Oh. Um, by just, you know, having good people helping me along. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's interesting that uh, Captain Wunsch got you headed in that direction. I'd never heard that before. Yeah. No, I didn't. So I, I, I wrote a letter to his sister because I didn't get to meet her when she was at the reunion. She's at, yeah. yeah. And, and I wrote a letter to his sister and told her essentially that and got a really, really nice letter back. I'm sure. Yeah, I know Suzanne. She's a sweetheart. She's she and we call each other brother and sister. Yeah, and I I had I just I thought the world of uh, Captain Munch. Yeah, and one of the things, one of the saddest things was he found out after I'd been there about two months that I hadn't been on R and R yet. And he said, "You know, I noticed you haven't been on R and R." And I said, "Well, yes, sir." Um, I, I it's kind of getting late in the tour. I thought I'd just pass on that. And he said, nope. He said, gave me a list of places to choose from. He said, pick one. And I, I picked Hong Kong and went there. And uh, he made me go on R&R. &R. Yeah. And <laughs> he ordered me to go on R&R, &R, in fact. Yeah. And while I was gone, he got killed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, was there. I didn't know that. I, I was, yeah, I was, I was taken next to him. On Captain Wunsch? I beg your pardon? You were next to Captain Wunsch when yeah. you got killed? Yes. Yeah. Wow. And uh, so I've always felt bad about that, but, uh, you know, yeah, what, a, what yeah. a wonderful man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He, he was, he, uh, I, uh, my, my impression from the enlisted ranks was that he was probably the most popular uh, company commander that at least while we were there that uh, we ever had yeah, yeah he, had, he already had orders to go back to the Naval Academy to teach Chinese yeah oh. great guy yeah he, oh, he was an interrogator I understand before he joined Alpha yeah I, I know he was in G2 yeah or S2 one of them yeah yeah yeah. Just a yeah. He would and he yeah. We, you know, just as a side note, we were we were fortunate. At least I was, and I I believe that uh, John, you were in in uh, third platoon, if I remember correctly. Uh, I'm sorry, first yeah. platoon. You had you had Art Hagen's platoon, didn't you? Yeah. That would have been third. Third. Yeah. Okay. Um. We we were fortunate because we had, you know, the experience that you guys brought in was something that we had never seen before, and and uh, the, the the manner in which you approached your commands uh, was very well received because of course we all thought that you know anybody coming in ought to at least say hey what do you think, and you guys were more than that uh, you know it was just. You know, it was just, it was an amazing experience, and, and I really attribute, I mean, personally, I attribute 
uh, Hank's command and and uh, Bert's kick in the back of the head every now and then to keeping me alive while I was while I was there. In this sturdy old part of the city Where the sun refused to shine People tell me there ain't no use in trying Now my girl, you're so young and pretty And one thing I know is true You'll be dead before your time is due to my listening audience, this ends part one of Grunts to Tankers. Come back next time as Bob Skeels, John Heffernan, and Hank Fuller continue to describe their experiences on Mudder's Ridge in 3rd Tank Battalion and all over i Thank you for listening, and remember to come back to part two of Grunts to Tankers. Semper Fire. Watch my daddy in bed at Watch his head.
I can remember going tree and trying to find out how you cleaned a torsion bar so that it shot. <laughs> That's about how much I knew about tanks when I got there. <laughs> well, after uh, uh, after Captain Once got killed, um, Dave Ralston took command of the company, and so I went from being third platoon commander to being the XO. Oh, and uh, a lot of uh, most of you guys know that I've gone for. I don't know, fifty years now by the by the nickname Jay. And it's because of Alpha Company. I uh when I became the XO, there was all of them log books to sign. And if your name is John B. Heffernan, you gotta find some way to shorten it up. So I just signed Jay on everything and everybody started calling me that. It's huh. <laughs> I knew that. But I don't know why I knew that, because what I I remember you as Jay. Yeah, yeah. I don't don't ask me why, but in fact, I mentioned that to Hank, and Hank went, "Huh?" But but yeah, I, I, interesting. I, that may have been from Pete. You know, Pete knew me that way. No, no, Bob, you were in Bravo Company. Uh, Bravo Company, uh, third tanks, yeah. I had the uh, first platoon. P. Rich had the third platoon. The guy named McCarty had the second platoon. I don't, I don't know whatever happened to McCarty. I hit 13 mines over there. I hit two myself, my platoon. And I was on my way to help McCarty out at Ocean View once. He was getting hit pretty hard. And he was over there with the Arvins, mainly were the occupants of that base, Ocean View, right by the water, right by the... So I was trying to see. Uh-huh. But anyways, I hit two mines on the way, so I couldn't go any further. And, well, they got overrun. And uh, I never saw McCarty after that. Our orders were always, as you guys can, uh, Tree, you, you probably know, and Hank and Johnny probably, my, my orders were always by phone, by radio. We, I hardly ever saw a company commander, um, Captain uh, Jay Miller, who passed away a couple of years ago, but. It was all, you know, they just tell you where to go at night and where to go to link up with uh, Marines that, that had a mission. You had to do prep fire for them. You had to work with the Arvins all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was uh, all bad duty. Do you know, do you guys know that when we served over there in 19, late 68 and 69, that we served along with uh, some notable classmates? On one, one hand, uh, Robert S. Mueller. Right, Jimmy Stewart's Jimmy Stewart's grandson. Yep, and we also served this exact same dates. You know, was Carl Marlantis who wrote Matterhorn. Mm-hmm. He was with us. Uh, he was with First Battalion, Fourth Marines, and he uh, was with Charlie Company. But I've, I've emailed him several times in uh, for the last ten years, and he was. Uh, I think he was operating the same area that I was, over you know, south and north of uh, about nine. Mm-hmm. I always thought that, uh, oh, yeah, I was alone over there. And I wanted to ask you guys that, uh, you know, over there in the Quezon area, I, I didn't have any contact for two months. Just building fire bases, Alpine, um, fire base Russell, and a fire base Argonne over by the Lewisham border. So all three of those, we were, we were the first ones up there, our company. But anyways, uh, 
you know, some in high schools today, they uh, I've had questions. You know, company, like they say, Lieutenant or uh, Mr. Skills, how do you how did you overcome the fear quotient over there? They say that you had to wake up listening post at night, and uh, he said it wasn't that scary shit. And then you had to uh, you said you had four active tigers in the area, and how the hell did you overcome your fear? I told him, I said the United States military is a huge military machine, you know, a whole lot of muscle. Mm-hmm. And I said, what helped me out or comes here is, number one, you could never show it because you were an officer. And, uh, and that was imperative. But, uh, you know, that uh, you knew you had air, air aviation support, uh, A-4 Skyhawks and uh, F-4 Phantoms. Mm-hmm. Within minutes, I could get support. I could get H&R fires all the time, harassing and interdicting fires, mm-hmm. just to keep the Keep them off your big genou, and in my house there, there's 40,000, that's the Ho Chi Minh Trail. You can see their smoke all day t- all day long, and you can hear the noise. It was only like four or five miles to Laos, yeah. along that Route 9, right into Laos. Yep. So they were saying, and plus I said, you know, I had the support of four artillery bases. So I tell them that, that the concept of the Marines... At that time, was combined arms. You have that's what make Marines uh, gives them their esprit de corps, their real spirit mm-hmm. in a battle and stuff. Is you got air, you got the grunts, the milit, the, the infantry, and you got the artillery. I said all three together, which they don't have today. They just have uh, it's a, just a different uh, Marine Corps today than we had. But no, I like the combined arms concept because that really helped me allay a lot of fear. When I was in different mountains, I was untouched for two months, like I said. But every night, I got to a high ground, you know, a different mountain. And, um, you know, I don't know about you guys. How about you guys? How did you overcome I, any fear? I, I never got over being scared checking holes at night. <laughs> I never did. It just You just did it. Yeah. That, um, I, it was just a... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think about it now. What the hell were you? Do? You just had to do it, and it was. Yeah. And I think that the the times that we were in in contact, there were so many things going on that um, I thought I was responsible for. That sometimes, and I was never in hand to hand combat. Um, that y- you were literally so busy that those situations were. You didn't think so much in those situations. You just reacted. Whereas checking holes at night, man, <laughs> I thought about every damn step I took. Oh, you're right. When, yeah, uh, you know, much, much more forward in history. I went to see that movie Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. And uh, for the longest time, I couldn't understand why I identified so much with the Tom Hanks character. Mm-hmm. And then it dawned on me one time that he was, you know, he had a, essentially had a platoon. He was a captain, but he had a platoon. Right. And I never saw him sleep in the entire movie. And that's yeah. the thing that I carried most from, you know, I didn't sleep much when, no. when I was there. You know, if you're watching the people out outside the lines or, seeing what's going on or hell you got to get up for stand two at five o'clock in the morning and uh um i don't know if you guys did that in in your infantry battalions but we got up every morning uh at five o'clock 
so that we could be uh, ready when Chuck decided he was going to attack us right at daylight. Yeah. Well, uh, go ahead. And and that that seemed to help, and that's also how I found out that uh, the guy on uh, what is it, Wheel of Fortune, used to be the AFVN guy that would say "Good morning, Vietnam" every time that we took yeah. we were up at, at five o'clock or six. He he came out at six o'clock. <laughs> to to your point, I carried it over into uh, into tanks. Um, I uh, always took the, the radio watch either from 2 to 4 or 4 to 6, and yeah. usually from 4 to 6, so I'd be ready in case something happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just did it. Yeah. yeah, sleep deprivation was one of the biggest enemies over there besides the, uh, the jungle itself, the rats and the leeches. Sometimes you'd have 27 leeches on you, and you had to use... You had to use fire or you had to use salt. I used to track, uh, I used to have Corman's call every night, 11 o'clock, and uh, they'd come up there and some guys trying to, some guys trying to get the hell out of there, they let, every, every time you get a leech bite, you get an infection or a rat bite, you get an infection. Some of them let the infection go and you could see their tibia, that cortical bone in their tibia, or in the femur. Mm-hmm. So the doc would say, you know, skills, we gotta, you gotta get them out of here. So I said, well, I'm not calling the chopper, you Call the chopper, give me your position. But uh, I said, "Yep, all right, doc." Anytime the doc told me to get somebody out of there for uh, heat exhaustion, heat 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 uh, stroke, you just got to get them out of there. You just call on the chopper. Although you, the enemy is seeing the choppers coming coming in, but that wasn't good. But yeah, the, the infections over there, um, and then sleep deprivation was the biggest problem over there. I just stayed, like half said, five in the morning, four in the morning, to three in the morning, I would check lines and I handed off to the corpsman and the platoon sergeant. And then the, um, my radio man sometimes would check lines. But those 30 meters between the, the holes, you know, you, in, 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 in tough canopy, real triple canopy, it was, I always had my 45 in my hand and I had my shotgun in the other hand. Mm-hmm. So, but the thought of a tiger jumping on you, it would, it would be immediate, a 400, 500-pound tiger. And uh, so you would have a chance. Yeah. You want to... Yeah, I can, I can remember uh, we were standing uh, uh, guard. It was Christmas time um, at the bridge there um, just before you got to the rock pile on Route 9. Kegia. Kegia, right. That's it. And uh, <laughs> that was... At that time, we had heard about the Jerry Sharps uh, radio man, I think it was. It was killed on an outpost by a uh, a tiger, and we had seen on patrol that day there. We had seen two cubs, so we knew there was a female tiger around and two cubs. Mm. And it was a beautiful, beautiful moonlit night, warm. You could see almost as well as you could during the day. And I'm checking lines, and it was so bright that that uh, they could have they could have sniped us from, from outside the lines and would have had no trouble. It was that bright. And I came over to this young machine gunner um, who was probably sitting, oh, I don't know, 15 or 20 feet from his, from his machine gun on a rock. And he was up and awake and all that and paying attention, but he was nowhere near his, uh, his M60. And I looked at him and said, what the hell are you doing? He said, there's tigers running around out there. Well, let's look at the wire there. They'll jump over that wire. <laughs> and I can remember talking to you, oh, okay, <laughs> and he understood, and he went back. But, uh, 
that's just kind of an aside. Mm-hmm. Speaking of asides, Heifer, yep. um, is you're a chopper pilot. Um, this might be interesting, interested to the audience. You flew, you're the chopper, you were flying the chopper in that iconic picture of the last chopper that, that uh, was on the embassy in 1975. Were you not? Or do I no. have that wrong? No, I, I, that was a guy named Jerry Berry. But okay. uh, I was flying H-53 that night, which was... Much bigger. Much bigger in it. And, and it's much bigger than they advertised. It. They would tell you, and they told us at basic school, and we all remember that, that a H-53 will hold 37 combat-loaded troops. Yeah. Well, I will tell you that it will hold 115 Americans, no babies and no women. Yeah. And it'll, and it will still climb at 4,000 feet per minute. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Hey, man, you carried That's amazing, yeah. And we, and we flew uh, We flew that day a long time. We flew, like we, we been back in the grunts. I mean, we flew from uh, 1,300 in the afternoon until uh, 2 o'clock in the morning. Wow. I'll bet. Wow. Jesus. Let me let me ask you this, if you don't mind, please. Sure. Uh, how, you know, when, when I was always in a firefight, I had this incredible tunnel vision that, that you know, I mean, I, I knew what we were doing, I knew what I was supposed to do, and I did it. But then I, I think to myself, how, how do you guys take in, I mean, now... Now you've got, I mean, when you were in the grunts, you had, you know, squads and machine guns and, and, and you know, maneuvering and all that. How, how did you move from that narrow perspective of, oh, somebody's shooting at me, to this broader perspective of, I've got all these guys and I've got to maneuver them around so that, so that everybody's protected. Uh, uh, John, you want to start? Yeah, uh, when I was in the in the grunts, one of the things that I used to do is I used to smoke. Um, I don't smoke anymore, <laughs> actually, since I got home from Vietnam. But uh, we got ambushed eleven times. Um, we um, never lost a guy until the last until the last ambush. And I lost three. And what I used to do was when a, if an ambush hit. I would take out a Marlboro and stick it in my lips. I wouldn't light it, but I'd just go through the motion of picking it up and putting it in my mouth. And mm-hmm. by that time, I had figured out what I was going to do and what we needed to do to to stay safe. Um, it, it just it gave me the ability to, de- to detach from what was going on, uh. concentrate on putting that cigarette in my mouth. And then saying, "All right, then we're going to attack going this way, or mm-hmm. whatever we're going to do. Everybody throw a grenade or something like that." And it, it worked worked out pretty well. Mm-hmm. But but you have to do that. The nice thing about tanks is when something happens, it always happens to somebody else. You're essentially twelve feet above them, and uh, and and you get you know plenty of time to think about what's going on because but you get it's very distracting because. When you get ambushed with a tank, everybody that can reach that cell phone or cell phone, that uh, telephone in the back bumper of the tank wants to talk to you at once. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just have to just have to work your way through that. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I just 
to me, the idea was if you could just remove yourself for maybe three or four seconds, and that's all it took. Right. Okay. Because I'll tell you, I'm not the quickest person in America. I mean, I, I just, sometimes I have to figure out what's going on uh, before I do something. Yeah. Bob, how grunts, about you? I was, I'm sorry, go ahead, Inc. When I was in the grunts, I was never ambushed. So I didn't have to deal with that. And what what did happen is when we made contact was that you had to trust your squad leaders. And if they were good squad leaders and you were fortunate enough to have a good squad leader where the, the you were getting hit primarily, then you kind of left things, let, they let him do the job. And I, um, I, I can, can remember calling in medevacs. I mean, I was doing stuff like that and, and talking to the company commander and that kind of thing, but the squad leaders were doing the job for me. Huh. They really were. And it was this, it was very similar in tanks because if you had good tank commanders, yeah. then they yeah. they were the bosses. Um, but I never I was never ambushed mm-hmm. like that, so I, I can't speak to what uh, have speaking to. Well, but the, but the fact of the matter is is that when you get into combat now, instead of you know just one or two people, you are now worried about presumably you're worried about five tanks or. A platoon of yep. grunts or whatever, and, and so you still got to, you know. I mean, it's, it's it's easy to get distracted from from other things, I guess. <clears throat> it, it it is, and sometimes you have to be distracted because you got to take care of yourself right there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't get you can't let yourself get knocked out. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Bob. And the, and the other thing is that. Um, I don't know, I can't speak for everybody, but I I felt very keenly the fact that I was responsible for these guys. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and so I had to, had to take care of them as best I could. Yeah. I mean, my, yeah. when I was a kid, my parents wouldn't let me watch the dog by myself, but, uh, you know, it was different with, with this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like it's not like Afghanistan. You don't leave a whole bunch of people behind and make their own big decisions. And, uh, and you know, it's just uh, I was on two offensive ambushes, but they're offensive ambushes where Y-shaped ambush and stuff where you had to use. You, you know, I remember from training that that's the part kicked in uh, fire discipline. You know, you save some ammunition because the next morning they're going to be pissed off. And what's coming around that corner by the Camlo Camlo River, you don't know what's coming, you know, so you gotta save somebody. It's like a war zone, I mean, it's deafening. When you open up, you know, you're the, uh, you got the trigger for the ambush. It's a, like a Y-shaped ambush I had on December 29th. And the lead, lead eight of them in the kill zone, and you just, you, you gotta keep the radio, you know, the squads, your radio contact. But I just kept saying, wait, wait weights, you know, in a low voice, you know, because you, you, it's hard to see guys walking in front of you with a rifle flashing in a, in a stream, but when you finally open up, uh, I let them carry off a lot of dead, but I spent the rest of the night from three o'clock in the morning on worried about what was coming around the corner the next day, mm-hmm. but um, I told the captain, you're up on another hill, I told them, uh, you know, the situation, 
uh, he had, you know, really their color and artillery, certain coordinates, all that stuff. So that's what you got to think about. Like you just said, you know, you got to take everybody. But the one uh, ambush I did have on me at Mother's Ridge, you know, I was supposed to take the, uh, the main objective, but I, I came in too late, late in the afternoon, so I asked to take it the next day, and that was granted to me, 6.30 in the morning. Then the uh, operation changed, and they said, skills continue sweeping east on the Mudder's Ridge till the end. And uh, that's and so the next day, December 8th, I came to uh, all those pots of rice, 10 pots of boiling rice, and uh, bamboo chairs and bamboo tables. Mm -hmm. So I know that was a fairly big, fairly big outpost. Yeah. And that's where your sphincter muscle kicks in, you know, and prevents a wave of fear coming over here, but yeah. I just knew I was always six-man back, the radio man behind me, and I always had a good, I had three good point guys yeah. that uh, would come back and halt the column, and come back and talk to me and say, you know, we got a problem up ahead, and so I'd move up with them and see all the pots of rice and the chairs and the tables and say, holy shit. So I'd call back to the company commander, and he would, he, he uh, it was way back in the line, I forget his name, uh, but I had five different company commanders in infantry. Anyways, he said, uh, send, okay, he says, get to the end of the ridge and uh, send, send uh, people out on uh, checkpoints. So I said, I've already done that. Five guys are headed down the hill. And, uh, so they were headed at the first checkpoint. And uh, at that point, um, you know, he told me to wait for him to come up. So he came up. And uh, he said, you got to get down there and get him out. So it just seemed so simple to me just to go forward the first checkpoint. I knew the corner. I could see it down there at the bottom of the ridge line, mm -hmm. uh, about an 800-foot drop. So I said, all I have to do is 12 o'clock all the way down there, all paced out. All your men are paced out, but all the way down, uh, my other two squads. And then all of a sudden... You know, uh, the point guy halts the column and comes back to me. And he says, we got a problem. Well, let's look over there through the canopy on the right. I saw three bunkers up on a hill. Yeah. So I said, oh, shit. So, I mean, it's just, you're always, it's just, just one of those things. Yeah, you're always thinking of the best maneuvers. But I knew I had to take out that bunker. Mm -hmm. oh, there's three of them up there. So I sent a fire team over, check it out. And they said it was neutralized. There was nobody there, but a lot of, a lot of ammunition. So I, I, t I made the decision with uh, a couple other guys to, uh, like, have evidence talking about consulting with other guys. And he, we went over there and took the other two squads over there on the, um, by the bunkers. So I became the right flank of the guys, the squad that was ambushed. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a good mover. Then I had the second battalion who took my place up on Mother's Ridge to come down and extract the guys. And I would just be a flank. Two, guys, two squads on the flank. Made sense to me. But then, all of a sudden, on the way over, uh, two guys did accounts, you know. You, I didn't have a, never had a third radio my squads. I asked for one all the time. Never got it. So the support over there wasn't the greatest. But anyways, I, I had to do counts. So they got back to me and said, two guys are missing. So they ended up starting their shot, you know, two guys missing. But it took me a while to find them. But anyways, the uh, my initial squad that was ambushed had five uh, Marines wounded. So they got back to the top of the ridge line. So 
kind of saves that situation. Mm-hmm. But still, spend the whole day. It's like a lesson for for the Afghanistan withdrawal. You know, you can't you can't uh, leave guys behind. So, spent the whole day. I mean, it's just a weary, chaotic situation where you're trying to find two. Uh, there's hills and all over the goddamn place, smaller yeah. hills than yeah. 800 foot. But trying, you spend all day trying to find uh, two sniper shot guys, and it's just uh, before you could call in artillery. You know, because yeah. that's the whole thing that you got to think. You're always got artillery support that's waiting. I had A4 Skyhawk up there. To Lieutenant, where do you want it? Uh, I had an OV-10 Bronco, Lieutenant, where you want it? I said, you gotta, you got to exit the area. In fact, exit the area. So I said, I'm just trying, trying to find two guys that are wounded. So, anyways, I won't continue the story. That was in my uh, June of, uh, this past June, June of 23, uh, article in the um, mm-hmm. Leatherneck magazine. It's, it's, all, it's all in there, so yeah. I won't bother with you guys with the rest of that. Stuff, but I lost three Marines. But um, that day, but um, I did save that ambush squad. But uh, you know what Tree was getting at. You know the you get know, all these individual men, but you're trying to deploy them the right way in your own mind. You know, if, instead of going straight down like I like I thought would be easy. You know, to, then to take the area which I uh, where the bunkers were. And um, the little that I know at the baseline, at the base of that that um, ridge line was uh, 52 bunkers. I thought there was only three. Oh, I got a quick glimpse. I thought there was a quick glimpse, and I saw three bunkers for sure over the top of a berm. And then uh, late in the afternoon, I saw it's like 20 NVA on a hill, oh. maybe 500 meters from me. And I thought that about that all that life it was Chinese or Russian mm-hmm. trying to teach sniper, sniper training. But they were just to the right of that initial, that objective. Right. I was supposed to take Objective Bravo. Right. Where there were elements of a couple of different regiments. And Fox Company eventually took that uh, objective. And, um, Fox Company and Lieutenant uh, Stephen Broderick, God bless him and his Marines, but he lost... Uh, 14 that day, including himself. Well, but that was my objective. I, all my life, I felt bad about that. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you guys a question. As uh, I guess, Bob, since since you've just been talking about the patrols and things, uh, can you describe just real briefly what what the point guy does? And and second question or second part of that is, how did you pick your point your point? Uh, uh, on patrol, very surely, you had to. But other guys were, you know, guys that you really want to go to war with. I mean, PFCs or lance corporals, and they would volunteer all the time. I said, no, you know, you got to spread it. You got three squads, fourteen men each, and you say, I want every night. You had to have, you had three uh, listening posts out, mm-hmm. 150 meters out from your lines off the top of the top of those mountains. And um, they had to send me, uh, before dark, you know, they had to send me uh, someone they selected. But you can't pick on the same guys. It's the most dangerous duty. Corman's the most dangerous duty. Yeah. You say God God created Corman so Marines could honor them. And that's the truth. Yeah. Because as soon as you get, you know, sniper shot Marines, it's Corman up. He's got to get up. 
and find those guys and treat them and uh, yeah. pick a couple more guys to help them out. And it's just toughest with this point guy. Yeah, they just take their time as soon as they, they they get experience, and you want that. You know, you want to guys that are volunteering all the time. You you want to continue to use them because they gain experience too, and they're. Uh, this is sometimes you talk about the real tough Lorraine that you want to go along with. Those are the kind of guys, and they're, they're going to exercise all the caution that they possibly can. You know, you, you got they're using a machete and making all kinds of noise. So there's no noise, noise discipline. So it's a particularly, particularly uh, dangerous job mm-hmm. with the noise and stuff. The guy behind him is a map reader, and I got a map too, so we're following in the right direction. Yeah. Can't get lost. But those point guys, I mean, the best in the Marine Corps. And geez, I mean, you got to honor the hell out of those grunts that do that take that are selected for those jobs. But um, you take your time, of course. You know, 15 meters apart in a, in a column. You know, all the way down where where he's headed on the compass yeah. uh, coordinate. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. What about what about you, Hank and John? A uh, couple things. One, we had to change the point sometimes depending on what the terrain, what you were trying to cut through, because it's hard work. Oh, yeah. So sometimes that got rotated, you know, and that depended on um, uh, whether you're cutting through really thick stuff. Um, other times, um, you, I got to know who the guys were the better, the better point guys, the more trustworthy. Um, and I always... I always felt better having them there, but it was really up to the squad leader. Yeah. Um, unless, at least when I did it, um, unless I really disagreed with what he, what he thought. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, yeah, go ahead, John. I, I, I would get the information on who's going to be the point guy from the squad leader. Right. Uh, and one of the things I always wanted to do with my points, and uh, and I made sure that I could. And and I'm I'm fairly lucky because I'm t- I'm tall enough that I always wanted to see him. I mean I I, I knew he was out there mm-hmm. and I knew what he was doing, but I wanted to be able to visualize what it was so that you could react right away if you had to. Mm-hmm. Where did um, you walk in the line then? Were you in the first squad or I always walked right but right at the end of the first squad. I was behind the first fire team. You were you were that close? Okay. Yeah. And because uh, I, I just, I, I don't know why, I just felt like I owed people, I mean, I wasn't right up front, uh, you know, I had. No, oh, that's pretty damn close, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I had my FO behind me, and. Uh, <laughs> yes. But that took a, the wonderful thing about having your FO right there is it takes a lot of map reading off of your hands. Uh, and. Uh, Probably, I can't remember being much farther back than six people back, ever. Yep. And, uh, you know, the other thing that you have to do, too, is, that I did is, one of the things that happened is when guys got short, um, you know, they wouldn't bring them back to the rear like they should have. Mm-hmm. And guy, guy gets down to like 10 days or 15 days left and... and he should not be out doing that. So what I came up with was, if you were short, if you were 10 days or less, 
and until we could get you out, you were my bodyguard. Oh. Uh, so that you didn't go anywhere that I didn't go. Um, and you kind of had a bet on the idea that I was going to try and keep myself safe. Um, and it worked out real well because the guys were like, I mean, they, like I moved them into this, into the CP at night with me, mm-hmm. um, you know, cause it was usually one guy at a time, you know, a couple, couple weeks before he, before he leave. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the fact that people knew that I would be cared, um, made them, you know, I think feel a little bit better about it. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I was going to tell you um, two things that I heard from uh, that I liked. One was about conserving firepower. Um, I, I was on the eastern end of the of Mother's Ridge um, late in my uh, grunt uh, experience and got to fire the New Jersey yeah. uh, two days in a row. Yeah. Did you call it in? Yeah. And, oh, uh, I, go ahead. And I, uh, the first day I called it in and they, they shot and they took out this hill where they were, we were getting a lot of incoming from. The second day I called and they shot it and it didn't seem to cut the, uh, the fire that much. And so I called them back and I said, you know, I, I actually asked you guys to fire for effect. And they said, we did. Check the altitude on the hill. <laughs> and so they were, they were conserving rounds but when I uh, later in my, my tour when I was um, working out of Quantico we went back to bring the New Jersey out of uh, out of dry dock mm-hmm. when President Reagan put it into, back into uh, into service and I was talk, talking with the XO of the ship one day and I mentioned that and they were able to go back and actually find that actual fire mission that had fired for me they have a have a log of every yeah. round, every at least every sixteen inch round that yeah. the the ship ever fired went back. It went back to World War Two, but they were able to find the day that I did it. And uh, my call sign at the time was Air Police Three, and uh, and they uh, they found the, the two days of rounds. <laughs> they gave me a they gave me a little board that I still have in my office. Um, it was part of the teak, teak deck that uh, that they cut up so they could put the sea whiz on the R two D you know, shoots all those bullets. And uh, they put a little plaque on it for me. Gave me, gave me, told me I could claim to be a plank holder from the New Jersey nest. Wow. <laughs> I like. Did, did you guys over there ever feel like we were bait in infantry? We were what? Bait. We were tankers. In other words, we were. Disposable, not disposable, but uh, we were just, we were real grunts. So maybe the lieutenant colonel, like mine, was Hopkins, battalion commander, and he was the one that uh, sent us to the lieutenant colonel that sent us to the different grunt battalions. But uh, Pete, I know Pete Rich was there. Hank, I think you were there. I, don't know, I think there were four of us there, lined up. So you know, you're you're out there in the Quezon Valley. Like I said, I found out that Carl Milanis was doing the same thing, you know, mm-hmm. in the same area below Route 9 and above it. And uh, but, but, you know, when you're out there, it's such an immense territory. You know, you got the Quezon Valley, and then you got Jungle North ahead, 
Then you get the DMZ up there, and you get to the to your left. But you say, Jesus Christ. And I had, I had, you know, when I was first there, my, I don't know, my first week, the guy said, Lieutenant. And there was a Sergeant Benjamin. He was my staff sergeant, my platoon, my platoon sergeant, Sergeant Benjamin. And he says, Lieutenant, do you feel sometimes that uh, we're bait out here? <laughs> you know, because you, you, you knew you got intelligence reports every day. I mean, you see the, the, you know, the, the artillery to tell you in the in Badak and Dong Ha, where the regiment is located. Those people would tell you that there's stuff going on in, uh, right next to you in Laos. And, but, you know, like I said, you could see their smoke, and you knew they were going into South Vietnam, that direction, instead of coming across the DMZ. So you feel good about that. But, like I said, if you had air support and artillery and H&I fire at night, you, you knew you were bait, you know, and everybody's a little bit, even the Marines are a little bit smart, and you say to yourself, Jesus Christ, we're just bait out here. But like I said, I wasn't had no contact in two months. Built Firebase Argonne, no contact the first two weeks up there. Russell, I spent two weeks there. By the way, in, in the uh, anniversary of Firebase, Firebase Russell, org, getting overrun, uh, in two, uh, February 25th, 1969, and uh, my platoon got hit pretty hard over there. And the, the guy that lieutenant took my place, uh, William Hunt, he got killed over there. Hmm. And, uh, and on a bunker that I was building for myself after two weeks. But um, uh, the Lightning Magazine, Kyle Watts, is the staff writer, one of the staff writers, and hmm. he's going to do a thing on LZ Russell, the whole. I gave him three, three of my guys that I found in my uh, tank infantry platoon, and they'll be the basis of the whole story. I mean, telling the story. He's there on the hill that night. It was overrun, so that should be. If you guys see that, if you get the Leatherneck, uh, the issue of the uh, February '69, and it'll be that article. And this guy's a fantastic writer. I think you've seen some of the articles, uh, award-winning. Article he's written uh, maybe 12, 15 stories. I, but anyways, I go ahead. I can't think that I ever felt like bait. I did uh -huh. feel um, a couple of times that tactically we were doing things with tanks we shouldn't be doing at all. For instance, there was, uh, and one of these involved Mike Wunsch, whom I admire just as much as you guys did. Uh -huh. uh, but one night we were at Charlie 2 and it's raining like hell. And he decided, we had been making contact off and on, little contact, and he decided he was going to interrupt um, any NVA that might be coming um, to, to, to overrun us, try to overrun us. So we went about, oh, I don't know, a quarter of a mile back up the FSR towards, um, towards the washout, and with a, with a squad of grunts, two tanks, and just sat there uh, on, on the edge of the road, and there were no fields of fire or anything. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they could sneak right up on you, raining like hell. Um, and tanks, of course, they make so much noise, you're not sneaking up on anybody in that situation. And you'd have to start the tanks every up every once in a while so your radios didn't go dead. Mm -hmm. And I can remember sitting out there that night and thinking, what in hell are we doing out here? <laughs> Seriously, I mean, I... Uh, um, and I, I remember, well, I won't go into any others, but 
I never really did feel like I was being dangled around. Well, you know, if they ever hit you, like out of Laos, hit me, you know, we could, uh, I mean, with the air assets, uh, you know, we could, and four fire bases within their locking fire. I mean, all the fire we could put on them. We could, I always felt we could decimate 40,000 troops if they came at us down that road or whatever. Yeah. One RPG uh, in the situation I was talking about would have knocked us right the hell out of it. That's okay. In the long run. Uh, you know, uh, and I can see why he was doing that because I was at Contien, so I was like, you know, four miles up the road from C2. Right. But we had we had the advantage of altitude because um, Contien was a was a hill. Mm-hmm. Right. And we could see them at night, um, especially with our wonderful telescopes. Oh God. What? Walking down the fifteen sixteen grid line, which was the divider between the TAORs, mm-hmm. yeah, and they were just they were, I mean, it was like they were following a line on on the ground, all walking in single file, all going down to attack Dongha or something like that, yeah, and we would wait for them to come back at after whatever they were doing, and we would just shoot them, uh, <laughs> but you know. I, I think, you know, he, he, he got very, I think, uh, frustrated with the amount of enemy that wandered around down there. Well, that was yeah. what Dewey Canyon was supposed to do. Is the, my understanding is that, that and I've, for lots of different reasons, I read up on the rules of engagement, which, stuck, which were originally set back in uh, 52 or 54. And... Uh, uh, I guess it was the thing that I read said the commander of 9th Marines talked to Davis and said that, that they they just needed to go into Laos and Davis ran it up the chain and nobody was willing to commit to no you can't do that and so uh, General Davis said yeah go ahead and of course there's a whole shitstorm of of what happened after that but but uh they did finally get approval to go into laos and and the 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 uh the the theory was that because the ninth marines were there it were, were close enough i guess and they needed to protect the flanks that it was it was an acceptable practice to uh uh, uh ha- you know to essentially put uh grunts on the ground in in Laos uh, it was just it, you know it was an it, gee, I don't know how to describe it it was a, a you know don't ask don't tell almost you know or or better I'm sorry better to ask for forgiveness and permission there you go <laughs> yeah and there were some pretty heavy hitters I mean I think that I think Back at that time, I think General Burroughs was the uh, CEO of Ninth Marines. Yeah. And, you know, he later went to be the commandant. And Ray Davis, nobody ever said no to him because you know, he had a blue max from Korea. Plus, hmm. his whole idea, and I, I, I talked to him later, his whole idea was he wanted the Army to, to view the Marine Corps as an offensive weapon. Right. And... Uh, so that's that was how General it, Davis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. 
and and that's how he was doing it by you know punching yeah. out at places to you know to get people well that's what he or came up with the fire support bases and all that they he started yeah yeah the whole the whole well dewey canyon in particular was was you know for lack of a better phrase his baby yeah but you know the, the, the thing about mutter's ridge is as soon as you know as soon as you chase them off the ridge they started working on getting back on there so yeah. that's that's how we stay into contact yeah yeah, how how did you guys feel about the 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 whole concept of 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 body count instead of I'm I'm sorry I'm maybe I'm putting you on the spot and I, if if I am I apologize but um, body count versus boots on the ground you know it, it, it seemed like in virtually every war you occupy the you know your ground is the ground that you stand on and you as long as you occupy it it's yours but when you leave. Um, it's not your ground anymore, and that's what we used to do all the time. Yeah, that was incredibly frustrating. I thought the number of times we went up on eighty four, one twenty four, and one sixty two, or in that area, mm -hmm. um, was it was every month you'd go back up there and you'd take casualties from one thing or another. It could be mines, it could be small arms, it could mm -hmm. be. The 122s they shot down there at us off the. It was, it was stupid, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, and that's what happened in at Mutter's Ridge, right? Is it just you guys yeah. just kept, you go up and it, take it, it and then go home and then you have to go back up and take it and go yeah, home. The and third Marines were up there and they got the got took casualties and stuff and they got to leave and then the fourth Marines came up and then the ninth Marines, but they were still <laughs> all taking casualties the same places. 1960, 1966, 67, 68, like us. Year I mean, after every, year. Every year, same thing. Yeah. S same month, really, December. And the other well, thing all in the same place. I mean, I, I was on Russell. I was on Argonne. Uh, oh, you were? I'm sure uh, there were other places that we all were at. Yep. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, just, you learn things. You start investigating. Uh, after 9-11, I started jumping on the internet and I found three guys in infantry and two guys in tanks and Larry Parshall and and uh, Soto and stuff and yeah you find out uh, that you were that uh, Robert S. Mueller served with us I mean the exact same time and he was with Hotel Company um, second battalion Force Marine same as myself same battalion mm -hmm. but with a different uh, company hotel and he went in there after uh Lieutenant Parker got killed and helped evacuate uh, 45 wounded off of Mudder's Ridge after off of Objective Bravo. So that was the luckiest time in my whole life that I got that uh, change, that uh, order that I was supposed to take in the daytime. And I called, talk about taking care of your men. I told my flint sergeant, I said, look at, I said, look at that objective. I said, in the operation plan over the radio, they said that was... I understood that was one mountain. It's three peaks. I said, how the hell? And he's from Mudder's Ridge, 800 feet tall. And you could see that you could see the objective. It was like two clicks away, two miles away. Mm -hmm. um, so I called. I said, I said, how the hell am I going to take that? I sold that thing. It's getting late, too. And I says, I, Sergeant Benjamin says, uh, Lieutenant, it's your call. 
and I just jumped on the radio and I called back to the company commander and I said, hey, you know, it'd be suicide if I try to take that place right now. I said, I don't even know how to assault it. And I said, I didn't hear a lot of prep fire going in. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, it's a truth, you know. Usually they do that shit. Yeah. And we, we all can be smart about that. And, and uh, he says, well, wait one, and he gets on the radio. I think uh, Hopkins was up in a chopper, and he said, okay, the old man's pissed off. You know, you're, you're screwing up his operation. But he said, go ahead. And uh, he said, you've got to sweep over there uh, until it gets dark, you know, over to the base of it and just check it out. He said, then get back and spend the night on Mother's Ridge. Take it in the morning, 6.30. And I said, yes, sir. And I just felt so good about that. But the next morning came, and Jesus, you talk about a God looking... God looking over you, you know, mm-hmm. on the phone, and uh, the phone rings at the radio. He says, Skeel, you got to continue sweeping, operation change, continue sweeping, and uh, take it. Uh, Fox Company's going to come up and take it. Two days later, Fox Company came up and took it, you know, and you know the uh, result of that. So, I don't know. You talk about, talk about luck and making it out of there mm-hmm. from tanks and. Uh, your time in the infantry during that 68, 69 period, which is the two worst years of the war. I mean, we were just, all of us were just lucky as hell. You two guys, I honor and respect the hell out of you two guys. You both got wounded. Plus, uh, I mean, I always respect your service over there, and I told you that before, but you both were wounded, and I lucked out, and I wasn't even wounded. Not all bad. Yeah, you two guys. Uh, you guys are. I, I, I got to say, you guys are kind of special because of the way that 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 you came in. Uh, and I, I I said this before, but I think that most of us, if not all of us, were were grateful that you had that experience before you ever came to us. Yeah. Um, you know, you knew how to operate with when you got into tanks. You knew how to operate with the grunts, and and I have to say. Uh, back to back to Bob's point, uh, I've read stories where where uh, uh, Marine officers would absolutely refuse to take a tank out there because they were concerned that it drew fire all the time. Yeah, True. I, I think that um, I have great respect for uh, grunts, tremendous respect for grunts. Yeah. I think that. Um, I saw, uh, I was in a lot more contact, a lot more firefights in tanks than I ever was in the grunts. And I think it's because we were mobile mm-hmm. and we re- responded when people were in the shit and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but boy, I'll tell you, I consider myself very lucky to have ended up in tanks where you didn't have to walk. Yeah. You could carry all the food on your tank you wanted. You could yeah. carry all the water you wanted. Um, you had... Um, clean utilities that you carried on the on tanks and stuff but part of being a grunt that was difficult as we all know is just just the climatic conditions you had to live with every day and night yeah yeah like, like half said you know those grunts served uh 364 days in the field before we could rotate them back to the rear and i could hardly do 90 days you know, you just can't admit that to anybody, and you can't look like you can't take 
more than 90 days, and you can't have any fear. And to be an officer, I tell you, oh, that was pretty tough. But my hands, I couldn't even pick up my rifle or grab my rifle. Is it shotgun at the end there, but M16. And, um, you know, my hands, because of the jungle rot, I had it just as bad as the troops. They had it in the legs and all over their bodies, but I had it in my hands. They were mangled. It looked like a Halloween character. But it took me three months in tanks to get my hands fixed so I could grab onto stuff. So, I mean, that jungle was a challenging goddamn place. And like Hef said, 384 days. How the hell did those guys do it? And the respect we have for the grunts, you know, I don't know how I could have taken more than 90 days. I was just like, wow. I lost 40 pounds. I think I know how they did it. I mean, because I, I used to watch. I mean, I, I really, I, I liked having a grunt platoon, and I used to be interested the hell out of me. But one thing was, they would talk to each other all day long. Yeah. And, uh, and that always back and forth. I was amazed. It was like being with a bunch of girls, but it, Every day they would have something to talk about. And the other thing was they shared everything they had. Yes, absolutely. I, I never saw anybody try to keep something away from anybody else. Yeah. If they had it, they all had it. Yep. Yeah. yeah. But they knew they'd survive out of that uh, unpopular war, that nightmare, if they just operated as a team and, and respected each other instead of just... You know, and having an officer calling all the shots, you know, somebody that engaged with them every night and the holes, make sure their holes were deep enough and, you know, use that starlight scope and you talk to them and yeah. become their really good friends. I only had to wake up listening post three times, but I'll tell you, that duty was the most difficult for me because you knew you get the radio call from the CO, Captain Murphy, uh, Captain Hills, and Skills, get out there. You and your company size operations. Say, Skills, you got to get out of there. Wake them up. They said you can't have a gap in the line. Mm -hmm. So, Jesus, I get my radio man. You head out there, and you know you're on a low, low squelch on the radio, and you're trying to get calling them. Set rep over. You know, uh, LP one situation report over, and they usually get back to you and say all secure. You know, and and so you do all three listening posts every night, but when they're not answering and you got to go out there, you go out there 150 meters in that canopy, uh, thick canopy, mm -hmm. where you got to know the direction exactly. That's why I always put them out myself, along with a Lance Corporal, a training Lance Corporal. I trained three of them, set up the uh, Claymore mines and the, and the trip flares. So you gotta you got to do that kind of duty. You know exactly where they are. But you walk out there, you know, you know the MVA's got them. I mean, but asleep, you know, and and then you could cut them a new. You could always cut them a new one, you know, if you because uh, you got so pissed off at them. But at the same time, you couldn't show it. You had to treat them like they were human beings, you know. They both fell asleep in the goddamn hole. Sorry, sir, you know they. But you, they they were all day in the goddamn jungle, sweat, rain, all that shit. So. You, you can't, you just, somebody said, how the hell did you discipline them over there? Well, I know war bars for sure, and you never, you know, you never really disciplined. You just became part of their team, and the, you just, you try to engage them like this was a team effort. Hmm. You're all going to get home. They always told them that because, uh, 
you know, you're working as a team. And I think they knew that, you know, that uh, and they, they started to respect an officer that you're not going to get him involved in a frontline assault or something, some stupid maneuver that was going to get him all killed. So, yeah. and the tanks too. You, we used to get incoming three times a week from the Z. You guys did too, right? Uh, yeah. Rockets, yeah. you know, 107s, 157s. I mean, the big ones, you know, take a turret right out the tank. But you go into 360, you wait it out, and uh, you always wait for an ambush after rocket attacks, but uh, it wasn't fun. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you a story. I think that Hank might remember this. Hank, do you remember sending me on uh, on KP? Um, no. Supposedly, I was supposed to do two weeks back there. Yeah, and we're back at Dong Ha. Yep, and you took me yeah. out, and we argued about that, and obviously you were the lieutenant, so I went, and within a week I was back. You poisoned everybody? No, no, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to get back because, you know, I had a crew. I had four four guys that that I missed, and you know, being with, I don't know, somebody in the chow hall just didn't didn't work well. And I I remember you chewed my ass something fierce because I was I supposed I... to go on two weeks, and I didn't go on two weeks, and now you had to send somebody else. Oh, I don't remember that. Oh, I, I do. You, you well, yeah, I'm sure you do. I. I think that might have been uh, Kerrigan before I was there, because I don't remember even sending people back to Dong Ha. Oh, was that right? I thought it was you. But I got—I uh, know I got my ass chewed for it. They all look like me. <laughs> no, that's not true. I remember that. <laughs> you look like you. But, yeah, yeah, do you yeah. remember, Tree, speaking of do you remember, do you remember knocking me on my ass up about Hill 84, when the uh, 122, we got hit with 122s one yep, night. I do. For he someone who played baseball me. almost professionally, you weren't very fast. <laughs> Jesus, you knocked me, you knocked me over, and everybody else got in the tank, and I was crawling underneath one. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I, 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 yeah, I do remember that. But, you know, I, I, I can remember getting up and getting into the tank, and uh, and I think they shot maybe. Oh, maybe eight of them at us. Two sets of uh, four sets of two, I think. Yeah. And I remember pulling down the uh, hatch in the in the tank, and the thing blew up right next to me. And the uh, I didn't get hit with any shrapnel, but got hit with rocks and sand, and yeah. my glasses got broken. And, oh, that's uh, right. Yes, yes. And yeah. I got knocked out, and uh, can I remember laying on the floor of the tank, and Sergeant Oh God, I forgot his name. Doesn't matter. Slapping me in the face like a like a John Wayne movie. Wake up, Lieutenant. Stop hitting me. <laughs> but you knocked me on my ass. Yeah, well, you got you to be, be quick. I'm sorry. I, and I apologize. I think I've apologized for that before, but I'll apologize again just because, you know, that's, that probably wasn't very nice. But, you know. No, yeah. Uh, you got you got you got sometimes you can just got to get somewhere before those were 122s i think were they not yes they were they were the 122s and yeah. we could see them where they where they sat on those um runways i think they were 
and they'd shoot them, and then they'd go back in their holes, and you couldn't yep. shoot back at them. I can remember one time, though, shooting back at them. And yeah. Somebody said that we weren't supposed to shoot up there into the DMC. That's right, yeah. And we just disregarded and shot back at them. I don't know if we did any damage. Well, I don't know that we paid much attention to rules of engagement pretty much anywhere. Kelly. <laughs> when I was at Contien, um you know, they had that flag up by the bridge? Yep. Yeah. Uh, me and the and the uh, Duster lieutenant, who was a uh, an engineer from uh, Texas A and M, uh, and I figured out the you know the uh, the right elevation and, and the right azimuth, and, uh, and we shot the flag down. But before we did, we called Dave Felkamp at at uh, oh, division. Yeah. Told him we were going to violate the DMZ. <laughs> 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 I'm pretending I didn't get to the call. <laughs> <laughs> Who was he with? Well, when he, okay. Yeah, I don't. You know, because what happened was because because we went from grunts to tanks. Yep. We didn't get a job in the rear. No, we didn't. I never. I never did. I so never did. Took, Bell Camp was with some grunt unit, and he went back to he went back to the rear. Is the DMZ violations awesome? <laughs> <laughs> Sending you guys to the rear would have been a waste of resources. That's what I mean. That's what that's what they did with the with the grunts. If you're a real grunt, they they did six months in the bush, and then they rotated you back to the rear to to run the staff at the. That's right. All and right. That's why, and that's why. Uh, Mike Chenault, who was in Lima Company with me, and uh, Ron McLean were killed because they couldn't stand doing what they had to do in the rear and applied for recon. Yeah. That's the, the I, only way they could get out, and they yeah. both were killed. Wow. I found the uh, video on the Vietnam uh, History Project on Chenault and to get the recon team that was with him when he got killed. Yeah. yeah. I can send it to you if you want, but I, I sent it to Ed Sherman a long time ago. I, I read about two of those veteran history project interviews, and they're just an hour each, a night, you know. And my, my, my wife always, always says, why don't you read more books? I said, geez, I read a couple of these things, you know. It's more interesting. But you find guys that way. You find guys in the same regiment, the same battalion, and just by doing that stuff. I think we we picked up Ron McLean when I was at Contien when he got oh, killed. Oh, you did, yeah. Well, wow. Because we went out to get them, because um, uh, we didn't think they'd get back. Um, they'd get ambush coming back or something. They'd already been ambushed once. But they, right. I read that. I read about that. Yeah. Hmm. But you're right. Those guys in infantry got to serve six months and then back in their area. Yeah. So we uh, served twelve months. You know, I never really thought about that. We served twelve months uh, front line. Well, I didn't serve 12. I only served 10. Well, I served 11. <laughs> you're right. I served, I served 11. So well, you're a better man still, than I, Gunk in. But still, I was 12 in the front line, you know. And I'd like you guys, I didn't have any contact with the enemy. Uh, I mean, other than uh, rockets. Uh, and then, you know, I was on reaction force like you guys was. I was helping Harold out, you know, hit two mines in the way to help him out. But then one of my tanks finally got to him, uh, Sergeant Soto, in the flying tank, and helped 
Harold out, but I never really, and then I counted the bodies next next day as 13 NBA bodies, but I never had contact until February, just one contact where I was helping the Army out. Can you believe that? Helping the Army out? They were getting hit in an area about half a click away from where, where I was operating, and usually they wouldn't operate in the same area of observation AO as, right. as us. But they came in, the chopper pilot said, Lieutenant Skeels, I got your uh, frequency from uh, from uh, Cam Lowe, the company commander there, Jay Miller. And he says, uh, he gave me your frequency. He says, but look above you. You know, I'm in a chopper just above you. I said, okay, I see you. He says, right over to your left, where you, the area you just left, the Army's getting killed. And I saw explosions and all that stuff. And they said, I'm going to give you the, he said, I'm going to give you the uh, Army's phone number. A frequency number, and the captain wants to talk to you right away. So I said, okay, and I jumped right on it. And he, the guy was panicking like hell, and like anybody would. But he had two tanks on fire, and he had a, he had a lot of APCs, and he had a lot more tanks than I did. Hmm. And he says, can you help me out, Lieutenant? I said, yes, I can get up. I looked around, you know, I, your left flank, you know, just starting of those mountains. And that's where I was operating. I was trying to get in those mountains, the low-level mountains, going into the jungle, you know, from the South China Sea. It's like 10 miles, and then you hit the mountains towards Laos. Well, I said, I'll get on your left flank. So I got two tanks up on the ridge line up there. And uh, someday, I mean, I'll talk about it, but Jesus. I mean, uh, Captain Miller agreed with me. He kicked me out of my seat, but it was like a turkey shoot. I mean, there were gooks coming from um, probably the Mudders Ridge area or somewhere, but they were flying over, jumping over logs and stuff in that jungle. And I could see them in the uh, big, the, you know, all the artillery shots in mm-hmm. the jungle. There was big gaps in the jungle. You could see them running through. And I couldn't believe they wouldn't look up at me. You know, it's kind of like a nightmare situation, but mm-hmm. they wouldn't look up at my two tanks. But... Uh, no. Uh, Larry Pachel, my driver, said he wasn't there with me that time, so he's the only one. And then Captain Miller, finally, we found him, and he agreed. He said, I came out there with your resupply of ammunition. And he said, uh, he said, you, I kicked you out of your TC hatch, and I, I jumped on the 50 cal. So he agreed with everything and that I said, but he passed away uh, two years ago, so I can't do that story without any backup. And I don't know who the other tank, don't know who the other tank was so uh, that's why we all do got to do these uh, video sessions you know or yeah. podcasts is because you find out things and then you can c- construct stories that help other people out you know like that's the reason you yeah. but they gave us 80 confirms that was a 10 day operation I only spent two days there on that uh, red sign but I would like to find I got in my tanker's diary I did a paragraph every day they, they said, Big Red One, third of, the, third of the fifth mechanized. So that's as far as I can take it. I did some research years ago, and uh, five, six years ago, and John Ware wanted me to write a story on it. And I can't, uh, I can't find out how to find the Army guys that were up there at the time. But that would be a hell of a story. Yeah. They, they gave us, it's, it's all unclassified now. You could find, well, I got the unclassified section now it says uh you know bravo company is, is attributed to 80 confirms and i said bravo company i said how come they didn't say bravo one yeah 
I mean, you want to get your platoon members decorated or something, you know, and, and uh, they just mentioned it. I think it was, uh, what's the name you used, uh, John? You used uh, your XO? Yeah, yeah, Ralston. So I think he was, uh, he had massive PTSD, very height, highly decorated tank officer, but um, oh, yeah. Plus, I was think so he was doing, but he, he, um, I, I had to do an after action report. I mean, I never did one. I never saw one, but um, seeing those after, after you start, you know, 10 years ago, I started investigating, you know, you do the unclassified stuff, it's all unclassified now, mm. and, uh, you know, it just said Bravo Company, got uh, 80 confirms, well, I don't remember Bravo Company, I think Captain Miller, you know, called in the jets, called in artillery support for the Army, because mm. I left after two days, he stayed up there. So that would be a massive story someday, but if we could ever find the, uh, who the captain was that I talked to, and then uh, I'd, I'd like to find out how they made out. Partial was your driver? Yeah, Partial. Larry Partial was my driver. Yeah. Uh, but he said, we hit a, one, of the, one of my tanks, another two of my tanks hit mines that day. I was looking them back to uh, Cam Lowe when that chopper came over the top of me. So I said, yeah, I can, uh, I got two tanks that are Mine hits, but I think I still I still can get over there to uh, that ridge line and be on your left flank there. And he said, "Well, it's easy. I get over there." So I think we really helped him out. But yeah. um, Larry Parshall, we hit a mine on, on the way up uh, another mine. So he said he was down there fixing that. Yeah. So I don't know who the hell my driver or my loader. We only had three man crews. Never had a gunner. Huh. But I'll tell you a quick story about Larry. Uh, in in uh, you see, I got out in '70. In 1994, I took a took a position with uh, school district here in Oakdale, and uh, it, I didn't. I, well, we had a bank robbery. It was a really dumb thing, but this cop walked out into the middle of the uh, parking lot uh, no weapon uh, I think he had a, a Kevlar vest but I'm not positive and he just talked this kid out of the bank and I said who is that and they said well that's Larry Parshall and I said huh they said yeah he, he was in tanks once upon a time back in Vietnam and I thought wow after after 50 years or 40 years after that uh, you know I, we bumped into each other and most reunions now I, I stop and talk with Larry I, I don't know um, a half a day or something like that just to catch up he's retired he was sheriff he was but, sheriff of that whole town uh, he, uh, he's retired now and he's living in yeah he now he's retired after 30 years yeah retired, oh yeah but he was my driver and he was my mechanic so I should have decorated him because uh, every, I hit 13 mines, my platoon, and I always told him, you know, okay, Larry, I said, you got to get a couple guys, we got to get fixed. And you took, it took an hour to button the tank back up, but I said, we gotta, we got to finish the mission, like you're helping somebody out. Yeah. You know, like, like um, you know, uh, uh, Harold Reince, you know, his situation. You know, but when you tell a guy like Larry to jump out of the tank and get two guys... That's a minefield. 
Yeah. You know, and I just, when you're, Jesus Christ, sometimes you reflect on Vietnam and you say, I mean, I was so absent when it came to decorations, decorating anybody. I don't know why that was, but I mean, I guess it was, the war was so intense, you didn't have time to to, to do stuff like that. And yeah. yeah. It was terrible because uh, Larry Parshall should be decorated, that guy. He's, he's, he's a really great man. And, and as a side note, the the department up here was pretty small at that time, and uh, whenever we had we've we have this f- semi-famous uh, chocolate festival, and the 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 uh, police used to bring in a dunking booth and and uh, staff the dunking booth so that all the citizens could throw softballs at the at the target and and drop a. a uh, a, a cop into the water, so uh, they they were just great guys, and they 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 had we had school resource officers that worked with us. I mean, it was just uh, I have a, a a great deal of respect for the, for these guys. They're they're just I mean they're I mean they're good police officers, but they're jack of all trades as well. Yeah. Um, Thanks for their service. Yeah, I'm gonna. I, I got to wrap this up because I think somebody's got to go get dressed for a birthday party. Thinker. And so, well, actually, uh, I've actually got uh, a little time. Oh, you do? Okay. Because well, we started a little bit earlier than <laughs> my grandsons. Okay. Oh, well, well, we'll go then. Yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, when when was can some can you guys describe Mother's Bridge? Could you see both sides? Could you see the DMZ and uh, south of you as well at the same time, or or was that am I just well, well like John, John, like John said, you know, it ran different directions, different areas. John was in a certain area. He was in all areas, probably, but I was just east-west, and that was a long ridge line. I mean, almost to Laos. But, I mean, I was just in the part, you know, above the rock pile in uh, the LZs there from 1967. There were old LZs that we all flew into. I mean, there was about four different battalions, one, four, two, four. Um, three, four, uh, one, third Marines was there, I think, afternoon. Yeah. So I knew third Marines were there. But I, it was just that one engagement that I had, December 7th, 1968. I think every year they tried going in there and cleaning them out. And they would push them out of that area to the detriment of a lot of Marine casualties. But they mm-hmm. still did it. And the, and the gooks were right back in there uh, a couple of weeks later, like, Heffern, like John Heffernan said. There was a, uh, we found a, I'll bet you there were three or four hundred bunkers at least, and it looked, and full of rice wine bottles, empty rice wine bottles, um, that looked like some sort of R&R kind of place for them, in-country R&R kind of place for them, that was up, it was just off of, I suppose you would have called it Mutter's Ridge then, it was right on the edge of the DMZ. Mm-hmm. Really? They had, they had, yep, and they had, um... Uh, lookout platforms. They were up in the tops of the trees, and they were, had, had uh, made uh, ladders out of vines to climb up there. Oh. <laughs> and we chanced upon that. Holy shit! If we, if that that place had been full, I don't know what we would have done. But it was totally empty. Yeah. Can but you guess was, the date on that? Say again. Can you guess the date on that? Um, it would have been. Uh, it would have been in November. Oh. 
uh, end of November, um, I took two patrols Jesus. into the DMZ and didn't make any contact. Thank God, both times. Yep. Uh, so and I had, I had, and when we got up into the DMZ, where wherever the hell we were, it was up above Mutter's Ridge. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. The um, the maps weren't very accurate, and thank God Jeff was talking about having his FO right behind him. I had a, a Sergeant E5 uh, 81 uh, mortar FO with me. Thank God he was there. I couldn't tell where the hell we were. Yeah. No. <laughs> so he, so he and I would figure that out. Go ahead. You, so you were there before me on Mother's Riz. I was there December 7th, and there was 177 bunkers up there when, when uh, during the battle, you know, Foxtrot. The, the ridge was renamed Foxtrot Ridge because of the valor. Right, right. The courage no. of Fox, Fox Company, but there was 177 bunkers. But you were up there in late November. That was before uh, before we 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 went on the, we did the assault. We took uh, Lima Company had four killed and nine wounded on December sixth. Well, I got I got four of the names looking at me right here. I've got them on the yep. on the wall here. Yep. Um, yeah, because. We we landed. We, as I said earlier, we. Uh, I think November twenty second, we bumped in, uh, landed at uh, Firebase Mac or whatever the heck it was, when uh, when uh, Mitch Harrington and the Third Marines were we. Um, they were leaving, and we we spelled them there, and that was November twenty second, my yeah. mother's birthday. It was early. Well, the stuff I've read said that all those, whenever whenever we left the fire support base, uh, the NVA would occupy it. Is that is that true? Yeah, they would come in to, uh, because I remember being up at Argonne, the first company up there to build the fire base. And, uh, would they, you know, choppers brought us in chainsaws at Russell, at Alpine, at Argonne. And we, I would handle a chainsaw for a couple of days, do sweeps all day. Mm-hmm. Those guys. I mean, that's, a, that's why you had sleep deprivation because you never got a chance to. But uh, you know, as soon I I was only up there for two weeks, and uh, then I left. We turned it over to First Battalion, Fourth Marines, and that's when they had the Tiger death from a Marine dragged out of his hole down to the stream, where I saw most of the tracks, yeah. Tiger tracks, and uh, couldn't carry the Marine across the stream, so he just uh, ate half of them. And left them there, and a recon team found them the next day. Oh, wow. I got pictures of all that. I got photos and actual pictures of the Marine recon team, and uh, they got a 500-pound uh, tiger strung up on a thing, you know, that they oh, killed. Wow. They killed that killed the Marine from First Battalion, Fourth Marines. Sure. But I, I'm sure that they came in. That's why I said I had no contact for two months. I was up first ones up on those fire bases, but they were empty mountains. You know, we had to. Make them fire bases. The chop the Chinooks and the sky cranes would bring in the 105s, the mm-hmm. bulldozers to build the pits, and all that stuff. And uh, it's funny, I never had any contact for two months. Huh. September, uh, October, and November, no contact. Unbelievable. When we got off a, a, a fire base, um, we would leave a uh, TOT for about a week later. Uh, and they and they would fire the time on target, and we never knew whether it was any way there or not. But 
Mm. You know, we kind of tried to make it at a unexpected time, and yeah. and, and of course, you know, you could tell that people had been there the next time we were there because there'd be not body parts, but you know, bloody yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what, according to what I read, anyway, Davis's plan was to 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 essentially hopscotch the fire support bases, take the fire support base, then bring in the artillery, and and then the third stage of that was to bring in the grunts and, and sweep an area that the fire support base would would soften up supposedly ahead of time. And and then they'd hopscotch over to another one and and do the same thing, and hit, they they kind of worked all around uh, that whole area. The you thing the thing that I rem remember is that you guys operated in the same area that the NVA had been when they laid siege to Quezon. That's right. Essentially. Yeah. Exactly. And All those mountains. But, it's Bob, actually, Mudder's Ridge is quite a ways east of that, actually. But the rest of the jungle area up there is, um, you know, they were all through there. Yep. Where is it to see? That, that whole area was just their, their homeland. Yeah. Yep. We were just lucky they decided to, well, the bombing, you know, it stopped November. That's why I didn't get any contact. The bombing campaign was working, and it ended. Johnson called it off November 1st, 1968. Yep. And uh, that's when we started getting, uh, you know, the, they started infiltrating back through the DMZ. Instead of going right. entirely along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, they started coming back across the Z. Uh, that's when we start getting hit, and in, in, uh, all my contact was in December of '68. Well, that's when they would have been moving back in. Yep. So yeah, that was, and and the but for, but for a while we were winning that war. I mean, in a little platoon like mine, I couldn't as Bates, you know, I couldn't coax them into coming out of Laos and hit me at uh, Argonne and stuff. Stones throw the DMZ, mm -hmm. stones throw to uh, Laos. And they wouldn't come out of there and, and hit me, you know. And why would that be? And uh, that's why you had to grow a set when you were there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was you know, the, the, the 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 read is that at one point they were moving more than a hundred trucks a day down Ho Chi Minh Trail. Oh yeah, you could hear. Not I couldn't hear them, but I could see their smoke and all their fires at night. Yeah. Well, you'd be able to see the headlights, I would think, right? No, it was deep. It was fairly deep into the. Well, there's a border there, you know. You yeah. just uh, it's fairly barren. A little town at the edge before you go into Laos. I forget the name of it. Uh, but you could, you know, they were in there a mile or so, or two miles maybe. But you could see their smoke at night. Yeah. And um, I saw ten of them, black pajamas, running into Laos. I could. I suspected, like, you know, 100% that they were NVA or, or Viet Cong and black, directly dressed, but I could call the fire support mission in on them, but I didn't. So you're careful about that kind of stuff. But uh, I, I always expected, you know, uh, if you didn't have a set of gonads before, 
you, you went to Vietnam, you, you groom, you groom yeah. in Vietnam, yeah. because uh, some of those conditions they put us under as bait, you know, it scared us. I mean, living Christ, I mean, that's why sleep deprivation was so bad. You had to stay awake with us using those starlight scopes, so you could see movement at night yeah. sometimes, and you could see. He said that satellite scope. You guys all use them probably eighty-five meters, eighty-five feet of, you know, like a green haze or snow, snowy haze. But you could see behind a tree, you know, the head moving back and forth. But you called back for permission to fire because they didn't want any listening posts firing or throwing grenades or firing at everything because they're rock apes and the goddamn tigers chasing the rock apes at night. I mean, you guys remember that noise? I mean, it was deafening at night. And that in, in itself scared the shit out of you. I mean, you couldn't hear the goddamn people in the, the foxhole. You know, I visited the foxholes at night. I just pass around the um, satellite scope mm-hmm. and say, do you see movement out there? Do you see that tree right there? It watches you. You see it. And they were mapping, at Russell, they were mapping out those holes before they ambushed uh, Firebase Russell. Yeah. On December, on the February 25th, 1969, <laughs> they were mapping out those holes because I saw some of that over a two-week period, and you couldn't fire at them. You get try to get permission. They say nope, you can't do it. Oh. You can't give away your position in your foxhole. Yeah. Yeah. And you go in, and there's the right, the right, uh, the right, uh, you know, way to go because uh, you would have given it away if they were mapping out the holes. Which they were. I mean, I got a map of what they were doing. They found an officer's map after the battle. Oh, wow. So 38 yeah. Marines killed and 78 wounded. I Gee. mean, there was a, that was a big battle. But they got, they opened up a gap. Uh, they, uh, what do you call those charges? Uh, what do they call those uh, TNT charges? Yeah. They throw, uh, I forget the name of it. But they threw. They threw them into holes, you know, yeah. and just pretty created. Yeah, so they create a gap, and then 60 meters, you know, you open up one hole at 60 meters, and they come up through 400 of them. Jeez, it must have been pure hell. Yeah. I tried to get back. I tried to get back from tanks. I asked Captain Miller if I could go back and see if my how well my platoon did, or see what the hell happened. He wouldn't let me go. He said, "There's enough." Intensity right here. He said, "You got to stay here and mm-hmm. do do your thing, you know." Instead of flying around in a chopper going to Firebase Russell, so I tried to do that. But I look forward to that story, you guys. Uh, February, it'll be coming on February. Yeah. Uh, before before I let you guys go, there's one 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 particular individual, or or MOS, if you will, that we really haven't touched on, and that is radio operators. Uh, can, can you can you tell us how really important radio operators were when, with particularly with the grunts? You had to have my radio operator had to be attached to me to my belt. We yeah. shared the same hooch all the time. We were always together. Um, they were next to Corman. They were as valuable as they come. Yeah. You're right. In fact, they had you, to, it, you had to have a dependable guy lugging a radio around. They helped you call in artillery fire because they got so used to it. H&I fires and how you called it in, you know, and you just had a fire mission over and uh, you gave them the coordinates. Mm-hmm. 
it worked, and you started way out on HNI fires, way out, and you brought it in close to your bottom of your hill and stuff like that, and then you can bring it up a little bit. But those guys, my my radio man, in, in waking up a listening post, you know, I mean, they had the same duty, like a dangerous duty as a corpsman. I mean, you had to take them out to wake up a listening post, checking lines at night. To, well, they did check lines on their own. So they were valuable. If you had a good radio man, the respect for those guys unbelievable. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you how good my radio man was. Um, his name was Ernie Saucedo. It's, I remember his name. It's 55 years since I had him. Oh. Oh. He was, and he was uh, amazing. I mean, he could, he could just do anything you needed with the radio and and, and you know, and he was smart enough that he was far enough away from me, so they weren't just shooting at the antenna and I was hoping mm-hmm. um, he could he could throw a handset about you know the length of the the length of the cord and put it right in your hand. I mean, wow. Yeah. wow. yeah, my radio man was Dominic Peretta <laughs> from Stamford, Connecticut. Oh, jeez, local boy. <laughs> yeah, tough little guy. Yeah, very dependable. Yeah, it was. Well, uh, it was Tommy Miller. I think he got killed at Russell. Well, I heard that 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 the that, I don't you know I don't know, but the antenna would always attract uh, an awful lot of attention from the from the bad guys. Yep, that's why you, some smart lieutenants used to put them in front of you instead of in the back of you because the gooks were. I mean, the NBA were always looking for. The antenna, and the guy behind the antenna was always supposed to be the lieutenant. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's let's wrap this up. Um, I I really appreciate you guys and all the time that you've spent with me and with the audience. Um, let's uh, let's start with John. John, any any parting words or, or thoughts about uh, what you did or who you, you know who you who you knew or any of that as as we're leaving. Well, we already, we already talked about Captain Lynch, um, and one of the things that that I have told people for fifty years is the reason that I'm at least any of the success that I am today is because I learned how to be a leader before I learned how to be a manager, and I learned that all from uh, from having to walk around the woods. Or ride around the woods with, you know, mm-hmm. anywhere between 20 and, and 40 um, little boys yeah. that I was responsible for. Yeah. And uh, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah. I won't tell you I wasn't scared shitless sometimes, but I, I will tell you it was, it was the premier experience of my life, um, not including my wife. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just like John said, I, I, you said it earlier too, John, the experience of my lifetime also, and most of us probably agree on that Vietnam experience and working with uh, fellow Americans, Marine Corps, I mean, it's such a great brotherhood. And to have, uh, I mean, to do what we did, TAD, and to military first and get the respect of uh, Grunt Marines, uh, yeah. they didn't have to respect you. But all of a sudden, in 90 days, I was asked to stay, and that was the honor and decoration of my life. 
but Captain Hill asked me to stay with uh, my platoon, and uh, I, I asked him if I could think think about it for a second. <laughs> I think I pissed him off, <laughs> but he uh, he uh, he he said he's going to put me over two bronze stars, and he said, "Well, he said, I think your experience here, you'll be able to deploy." the Marines around tanks a lot better? And I said, yes, that's the reason, uh, Captain Miller. I said, you know, when I get there, uh, I'll know how to play them. I'm going to carry extra sea rations in my gypsy rack for the Marines because because the, it, we weren't well fed over there at all. Yeah. You needed more than three boxes of sea rats. Yeah. So I carried extra sea rats when I worked with the Marines and threw up boxes, big cartons, huge and uh, I, knew, I think I learned how to deploy Marines because I wasn't injured myself. Sometimes you had to worry about they wanted to run the tanks, but you know you had minefields all over the goddamn place. So you had a lot to worry about over there. But it was yeah, the honor of my life and uh, to, to get uh, you know the uh, camaraderie over there and to to work with this. Fellow Americans like that, patriotic Americans, like that environment in a war situation, it's just the, the honor of your life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd echo that. I remember, and it was either at uh, boot camp or at, at basic school, somebody, some one of the instructors was talking about uh, how this was going to be the highlight of your life, being in the Marine Corps. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, really? Um, and when I came home, um, I think like a lot of guys, um, I kind of hid. Mm-hmm. You know, we weren't very popular when we came home. And and um, I didn't want anybody to know um, that I had been a Vietnam veteran or I'd been in the Marines or anything like that. And I'm kind of ashamed of that in in retrospect. Because it was the highlight of my life, that my, that my marriage and family. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, I can't imagine not having gone through my life without having had that experience. As uncomfortable, as disgusting, as scary as it was, it was. I don't know. It um, it was the highlight. Yeah. yeah, we all put it away for fifty years, Hank. Yeah. Yep. You know, we all did. I think we all did. After nine eleven, I started becoming patriotic again. And saying, "Geez, I gotta try to find some of these people." And thinking, I sent in for my fitness reports. I sent in for any decoration I might have. That was it in two. So we're talking about two thousand ten. Oh yeah. I did a, so, I mean, you've got almost, well, 50 years or more. I think uh, one of the other things, too, is that um, I, I can remember writing this home, words to the effect that um, you didn't have to worry about America if these 19-year-old kids, <laughs> and I was 22, um, 19-year-old kids are running around over there doing what they're doing without any problems and and just doing it and sticking with it and staying with it. Yep. Um, and I, I don't know, it was wonderful people. And br- they're brothers, truly. Yeah. You guys are brothers. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And you don't have to be in the Marine Corps to be a brother either in, in that regard. 
it, it makes it even more of a brotherhood. But yeah, sure is our, our classmates from eight sixty eight Hotel Company. Well, it's just a great those reunions, and that's why you guys have to. By the way, go to the next reunion in Colorado Springs. Was outstanding. There's 177 showed up. Yeah, I couldn't. The Antos people. It was physical that I couldn't go because of this cardiac difficulty I've had. Yep. But the next, next time, time. Yep. next time. Hey, Tree. Yeah. Thanks for doing this. Oh, yeah, Tree. Thank you very much, guys. Guys, this is this is your thing, and you know, we had not talked about Mutter's Ridge and all the time we were that that. We'd gone through this. You guys are so unique, and and in my mind, so special because, again, you brought all of that experience with you, and I believe that that experience saved an awful lot of lives in tanks because you knew what you were doing ahead of time. And I hope you're right. So oh, I, I I I firmly believe that. Uh, it's just uh, I. I can't. I can't thank you guys enough for everything that you did, especially for this podcast. But, but uh, I do appreciate everything. Uh, I thank you, and I, I uh, can only wish you all Godspeed. I hope to see you all. I think it's San Diego, but, but um, I would love to sit down with you guys and buy you a beer. I really would. I'll be there. Good. Well, Good. we're gonna. Heck and half, half and I and Anchor are going to buy you another dinner at that restaurant, and uh, we'll have some beers together. It goes with a, a case of Modelo's at the next reunion, Tree. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. Thanks you for organizing you. it, John. Thank you very much. All righty, you guys. You guys. You guys take care. Semper fi. Bye bye. Semper fi, guys. Yep. Bye bye. And uh, Tree. Yeah. Just so you understand, the, the license plate on my personal vehicle says Alpha 3 Tanks. <laughs> Does it really? Yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> Very cool. Very hey, cool. Mine says, mine says LT.0302. And Sherman got on me. He said, Skills, I can't believe you stole our MOS. You're not a good grunt lieutenant. I said, hey, I served three months in Marine infantry, And, uh... I put that in when they did custom license plates about six, seven, eight years ago, mm -hmm. and I, I I had 1802 uh, dot uh, tanks, you know, or 1802 dot uh, what the hell was it? Oh, 18, it was uh, LT dot 1802. That wasn't accepted, and then the other I had another choice in there too. But I got 0302, so I said, God damn it, I'm not going to be embarrassed about that. I mean, I served as a grunt in the goddamn jungle. Yeah. And you know how valuable that was? When Very I, when valuable. I, when I was a major, uh, they called me down to be the uh, air officer for the uh, 3rd Marine Regiment. And I didn't want to do that job. Yeah. So I looked in the, I looked in the uh, uh, seniority list, mm -hmm. yeah. and went down there, and I said to the colonel... Um, that was in charge. He said, well, we'd like to have you come down here as the uh, air officer. And I said, if I come down here, I want to be the three. I'm senior to your three, and I got on three or two. <laughs> and, th and they said, gee, thanks a lot, and I never heard from them again. <laughs> <laughs> that was outstanding. All right. Holy. 
Semify, you guys. I got to get off of here. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm late to a birthday party. Yeah. Yes, Semify, guys. Semify. Stay well. T- yep. Thanks, Street. See you later, guys. Thanks, Street. You bet. Take care of your Absolutely. Health. Stay healthy. Yep. Yeah. <laughs>